Hey guys, just a quick note before we begin that the show may contain spoilers and adult language, but that's just because we know how to have a good time. Stick around, you'll be glad you did. You are here for me to enlighten you. You ever act like this again, you're barred for life. It's just violent base. It's kind of embarrassing. If you know your lines, then you can forget them. Well, I get it. It's very clever. <laughs> Hello, peoples, and welcome to Esoterica Cinema, the podcast where we take films from the cinematic multiverse and discuss the hell out of them. My name is Jason Peters, and with me today is the man Kevin Spacey once referred to as a handsome-ass slab of baby back ribs, Mr. Ryan Siebold! Bring on the barbecue sauce! <laughs> What's up, Jason? <laughs> I always, you know, at the time I assumed it was a reference like baby got back, baby back ribs. Like he thought there was something there. <laughs> I don't think there's anything there. But, I, I, you know, it's a playable lie. I'll give you that one. Whatever. <laughs> What's going on over there in Tampa, Florida, good sir? It's just me and Kevin Spacey, smooth hands, buddy. Uh, <laughs> things are going pretty well. Staying busy with work and, uh, and doing these podcasts with you. Thanks for having me back again. You haven't fired me yet, so I must be doing something right. Yeah, yeah. No, we actually did uh, some some audience research, and uh, you've been polling like twice as well as I have. It's crazy. So now I yeah. have to keep you around because apparently I'm really unlikable, and people don't like the nasal quality of my voice. So, man, did your wife around. tell you that? <laughs> <laughs> she have, was like, one of the four people like, polled. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You, I'll bet you pulled your wife. Um, oh, so anyway, it's that kind of show today. <laughs> it's weenie in the butt. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> All right, man. Well, hey, Jason, uh, what's up, dude? Hey, we watched some movies. We did watch a movie, dude. We watched a couple movies. Tell you what, though, before we get into that movie, and I know you're gonna go ahead and uh, kick us off here with a little description in a minute. Did just want to take a minute to address to the listeners. One of the reasons that we do this show, I know we've kind of talked about it a little bit, but I know a lot of the films that we look at are really films that you haven't seen. Maybe you haven't even heard of them. Ryan and I haven't seen a lot of these films either. And the reason that we specifically look at these lesser known films, I mean, we're called Esoterica Cinema for a reason, and that's that people have made a lot of wonderful art over the years. And sometimes that art connects and it becomes popular and it persists throughout time and it sells millions of copies and other times there's really quality work or maybe there's work where it's not perfect but it has a lot to offer and we just sort of disregard it because there's so much out there right we're just flooded with options so what ryan and i wanted to do with this program is give ourselves a chance to check out some of these films that we have maybe heard about have a little bit of a reputation but they're just not films that are part of the mainstream social consciousness and then also expose those films to you, the listeners, and let you know, hey, this one, you know, maybe it wasn't popular for a reason. It's okay. If you like it, if you like these types of films, just check it out. If you don't, you shouldn't. But then there's also some really wonderful films that we discover and we bring them to you in hopes that you guys will like them just as much as we do and you'll check it out and give it a shot. And who knows, maybe there's some films out there that nobody's watching that really deserve a sort of renaissance of their own you know and and recognition that just eluded them previously 
And I think that maybe we've got a couple of those films here this week without going into too many spoilers. And uh, so, Ryan, why don't you go ahead and let the audience know what the film is we're going to be looking at and give us a brief description before we get into it. All right. Well, we got a couple of uh, winners today. I was pleasantly pleased with both these films. I expected to be, and I was. Uh, we're going to go ahead and start with Paths of Glory from 1957 by Stanley Kubrick. Paths of Glory is a 1957 American anti-war film co-written and directed by Mr. Stanley Kubrick based on the novel of the same name by Humphrey Cobb set during World War I. The film stars Kirk Douglas as Colonel Dax, the commanding officer of French soldiers who refuses uh, who refused to continue a suicidal attack after which Dax attempts to defend them against the charge of cowardice and a court-martial. So, yeah, this is a interesting little film. I will say, Jason, that this was not the movie I thought I was setting out to watch. It was mm-hmm. different. It's Kubrick, so I should have expected that. I don't know why I expected anything. Um, he always kind of takes traditional cinema and turns it on its ear, which is why we love him. And he did that with this in a kind of a smaller, more confined way, you know, a little modest budget. And uh, kudos to that guy. He crushed it. Had a bit of a solid career after this, I hear. That guy's going places. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. So uh, I did have a trailer that I wanted to go ahead and play for the audience, just in case it's a film that any of you have not seen or it's a film that it's been a while, you want a refresher, let's go ahead and listen to the trailer for Paths of Glory. Since the publication of the book 25 years ago, no one dared to make this movie. It was too shocking, too frank. What sort of casualties do you anticipate, sir? Mm, say, 5% killed by our own barrage. It's a very generous allowance. 10% more in getting through no man's land, and 20% more getting to the wire. That leaves 65%, with the worst part of the job over. Let's say another 25% in actually taking the anthill, we're still left with a force more than adequate to hold it. General, you're saying that more than half of my men will be killed. Aside from the inescapable fact that a good many of your men never left the trenches, there's the question of the troops' morale. Don't forget that. The troops' morale? Certainly. These executions will be a perfect tonic for the entire division. There are few things more fundamentally encouraging and stimulating than seeing someone else die. Where in heaven's name are they? On the left. Where in the west? Zero plus one and are still in the trenches. They're not advancing. Miserable cowards. They're not advancing. The barrage is getting away from them. They're still in the trenches. Captain Nichols. Yes, sir. Order the 75s to commence firing in our own positions. All right, Ryan. So this is obviously an older film. There's actually a little bit of interesting history behind it. And uh, we're going to throw some of those facts in here as well as we discuss. So as we always do, we're going to start at the beginning. When this film starts, we open up on an exterior of this really extravagant, fancy-looking building. Uh, we learn, quickly learn that it's in France. It's got a uh, crisp, diligent military procession that's kind of going on. And we also really quickly see some of the elements that are going to become hallmarks of Kubrick's, right? So there's just... Once you become familiar with his look and the visual language that he speaks, you start to see this 
across all of his different films, right? Whether it's the specific geometry that he utilizes. And so we see a lot of that with this sort of, like I said, military procession that's going on here. From there, we go inside the actual building. We see these two guys and they're talking. We don't really know who they are right off the bat, but they're obviously important military people. They're going back and forth. And one of them makes a request of the other to basically take over this impossible location on this battlefield. It's known as the Ant Hill. It's currently occupied by the Germans. Uh, the Moreau character is the one who the request is made to. And at first he kind of resists, but then his superior officer lets him know that there'll be a nice promotion in it for him, right? A little something to goose him along. And uh, as it tends to do in these sort of movies, when you're looking at like the big bad authority figures, uh, he's more than happy to do it if it's going to advance his own personal cause. And so from there, uh, he's going to set into motion what's going to become the central conflict of the film, which is the uh, attempt to overtake the Ant Hill as well as the government's response to that. So, uh, Ryan, what did you think about the way that, you know, Kubrick shot that room? I mean, I, th I thought it was, uh, like I said, we sort of see a lot of what he would later be known for. Did you feel the same way about that? Yeah, lots of cool camera movement. And, uh, I mean, there was just a... It, uh... I thought the setting was really neat. I don't know where they shot it, um, soundstage or on location, but it had a lot of Lawrence of Arabia feel to it, just the big mm. grandiose, you know. It lets you know these were some some big-time dudes, you know, and they're, you know, playing chess with the world. And, uh, you know, the rest of the movie kind of plays out accordingly uh, within that little chess match. But, uh, you know, they're conspiring, and, and uh, a lot of... A lot of beard stroking and mustache twirling going on here, but indubitably, right? Yeah, they they definitely have you know high backed chairs that they're sitting in that are yeah yeah some exotic so, fabric um, there. <laughs> yeah, I I thought the uh, the establishing shot and then like you said all the camera movement and stuff it uh, it it felt like. Play School is my first Kubrick movie, and I uh, really <laughs> Definitely, yeah. And <laughs> the actors also did a really good job of sort of, of sort of exploring the environment right off the bat. In addition to, because, you know, Kubrick's sort of known for his wide shots and his slow tracking shots. And so it's there's a lot of people that may consider his visual language kind of on the dull or boring side. And so I think that for those types of people, because look, let's remember, this was a major studio release. You know, this wasn't like a small indie film. I mean, this was, you know, an MGM picture, whoever released it, one of the one of the bigs. And it's a Kirk Douglas starring vehicle. And so uh, he, he, you know, he, he has an audience to please, you know, and I think that he was young enough in his career that he wasn't quite as stubborn in his sort of know-it-allness with regard to his approach and his style and you know, he's definitely one of those people where you have to take the good with the bad in terms of the way that he approaches filmmaking and, you know, some of the more unfortunate stories like, you know, how he treated Shelley Duvall when he was filming The Shining, things like that. But I think that here, you know, he's young enough and he doesn't have that reputation and that power yet. So he still gets to play ball a little bit. And I think it ultimately does work to the film's benefit. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, there's a little back and forth and, and you know, a lot of... Uh... A lot of setup and, you know, here in this first first scene. And then we 
kind of get right into it and we end up uh you know right in the battlefield and we start to well the the two you know generals or what have you uh make plans basically to take the anthill like you were saying and uh and then we get to the anthill and uh, the the poor military souls that uh were going to be used to try to take this untakeable thing and um you know eventually that's when we get down to brass tacks and meet kirk douglas and that gets introduced to us yeah, so, and that's right before the actual storming of the anthill. So, like, right before then, we have that scene where Moreau is going through the trenches, you know? And, and I mean, you got to just figure, too, that, like, Kubrick was just licking his chops at the idea of photographing in some tight corridor of a trench, man. I mean, like, those tracking <laughs> shots, right. those tracking shots, and with his love of, you know, geometry and symmetry, those tracking shots, whether it's, you know, just the empty sort of trench and the soldiers hanging out on the side and it's a little bit, you know, smoky and ethereal or, you know, whether he's watching Kirk Douglas mark da- march down the middle of the trench itself, check his watch all badass style while bombs are just blowing up behind him. I mean, that dude loves himself some tracking shots, especially within tight quarters. So this is like the precursor to The Shining, right? That would come 20 years later. It's basically the hallway shot, but in black and white in the middle of a trench. Yep, yep. Or even, uh, you know, there's a little bit of that in 2001, and and yep. uh, yeah, I agree. That's kind of his MO, and, and he gives it to you here in a very, very cool, raw, you know, way. Um, there's even a little uh, wink and a nod in... in you know, some of Deacon's shots in 1917, I thought, you know, when I was watching it, uh, I was kind of like, oh, a little 1917 uh, stuff going on here. It's pretty mm. fun. You know, I uh, I still haven't seen that film. What? Yeah, I know. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a feat of strength. It is what it is, but Jesus, how they made that movie is bananas. Um, you know, I, uh, Jason, do you think they used uh, dollies for those leading shots and tracking shots, or were they? You think they were handheld with this, or or no, or no way it was handheld, the... dude. Yeah, no, it ha- it had okay. to be on a dolly with steady because, like, I mean, that we're talking what fifties. I thought I saw dolly tracks. That's why I was asking. Well, so I mean, I don't know that it could be tracks, like because there was a lot of the shots where we saw the ground before us. You know what I mean? So I mean, I I, I mean. I suppose they could have filmed it in a certain way. I was trying way, to figure it out. It, uh, seemed, you know, it seemed, I was trying to get seemed, to the bottom of that Scooby-Doo mystery. Yeah, but I just think at the time, there was no way. Dude, have you ever gone back and watched a film from the 30s and 40s and just seen them try to do like a simple dolly left or dolly right? Like, it, it feels like you're off-roading on a goddamn mountain with like all sorts of giant boulders, dude, and they're just like moving the camera over a few feet to the right. Like, steady cam technology and all of that was not what it was back then. And we get some really, really great, really smooth tracking shots. Yeah, but they had to have, they had dolly tracks back then. They probably started with dolly tracks. They didn't go just like jump right into doorway dollies in a dirt uh trench did they for this shot yeah i don't know i don't know i'd be curious i would be too if any of our listeners know feel free to hit us up and this will be a good uh i know more than you do moment for you you can email and school us at esotericacinema at gmail.com or hit us up on twitter (laughs) at esotericacinema shameless self-promotion let us know that we're a bunch of idiots and here's what's up so anyways, Ryan, let's get back to the film. So if you remember, this guy Moreau, he's going through, and look, 
one thing we also need to acknowledge is that this is a satire of war films, right? And so there's a lot of making the authority and establishment figures out to seem either foolish or ill in their aims, whatever that is. So I think right off the bat, this Moreau guy is kind of made to look like a fool because he's just walking through and he just stops like every, what, seventh to twelfth soldier and he's like, hey, you, are you ready to kill more Germans? And he's like, yes, sir. And they're like, yeah, very good. <laughs> and then they like take five more paces. And he's like, you there, are you ready to kill more Germans? And he's like, yes, sir. Ha, that's what I love to hear. And it's like, oh, okay, so you're like the shitty floor manager or owner that like does nothing for the business and just kind of asks people like, hey, you good? Hey, you good? Uh, <laughs> which is funny because I don't know if you're watching uh, season three of Miss Maisel at all, but there's a funny scene that is exactly that moment in there. You ever catch that show? I, I uh, no, I, I really actually, actually really do enjoy that show, but I haven't gotten into season three yet. It, it, it's very charming. I do enjoy it. She's great. But uh, anyway, so let so well, from- and, and, and and to your point, uh, a lot of the soldiers he's asking actually are not good at all. They're, and they tell him <laughs> such. They're like. Yeah, bro, I'm not good, dude. <laughs> he's like, ah, suck it up. And uh, he's like, oh, I'm missing an arm. It's not very good. He's like, ah, oh, you'll be fine. Well, Rub yeah, no, dude, there's, dirt on it, there's the guy who's literally suffering from, like, shell shock and PTSD. And he, like, talks to him and they're like, oh, yeah, no, he's shell shocked. And he's like, what? You're a pussy. There's no such thing as shell shock. Get the hell out of my infantry. And it's like, oh, my God, this guy's right. a piece of work. Like, man. Yeah. <laughs> so... It kind of lets you know that uh, he ain't taking no for an answer. He's uh, <laughs> he's going for a promotion, basically, and a you know commendation or whatever it is. And uh, yeah, so if he takes the ant hill, he gets it. And yeah. so now he wasn't that interested in sacrificing his men and and taking all the bad rap for it. But uh, once he had that little carrot on the stick, you know, he he was all about it. So yeah. here we go, down in the trenches, uh, and we we meet uh, our our cast that we're going to be with for most of the rest of the film in this trench, yes. uh, including uh, some different military personnel. Uh, we do meet Kirk Douglas here, but uh, not until a little bit down the trench. Uh, we meet a few people prior. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing that I love is when we do meet Colonel Dax, who is the name of the character played by Kirk Douglas, like he gets what I have to imagine would have been like the sexy leading actor shirtless shot today. Like it's done by like Chris Pratt, you know, today. But uh, back then it was, you know, Mr. Kirk Douglas. And it's like awesome because not only does he have the washboard abs, but he's got those really high waisted pants that they all wore back then. <laughs> and then they go like right up yep. to the rib cage to where you almost can't even see Absolutely. the abs. And you've just got to imagine that, uh, you know, all those uh, all those suburban housewives as uh, the political demographics like to identify them. They, they must have gotten down. <laughs> <laughs> Kirk Douglas and mom jeans, no belly button. Kirk Douglas, just straight yeah. to the ribs. Yeah. I'll bet you Kevin Spacey would have thought he was a sexy slab of baby back ribs too. <laughs> Kirk Douglas is so manly; he's got hips on his ribs, and we saw them. He's a barrel-chested dude too. He he was a scrappy man back then. Uh, I think this is after. I think this was made after uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, if I'm not mistaken. And I, I really enjoy that movie. But uh, really? he was a strapping young barrel-chested man in that one as well. But uh, Ryan, Ryan. Opposite Peter Lorre, I guess. Ryan, this is a, this is a good time. I got I to gotta, I gotta miss something to you, buddy. And uh, it's not easy, but uh, I'm just going to throw it out there. This, uh, this is the first film I have ever seen starring one Mr. Kirk Douglas. 
What? Are you serious? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, dude. I mean, I know all about him, and you know, I I avoid his his shitty sons movies like The Plague, but uh, I I really enjoyed him in this, and uh, I definitely want to see oh, some some man. more Kirk Douglas. And not only that, but the thing that you got to remember too is uh, I know Kirk Douglas as what's his name Chester, the old man from The Simpsons who made the actual Itchy and Scratchy. That's what I know him from, okay? <laughs> when you say Kirk Douglas, you know, you've probably got some prolific film he did, you know, like in his 20s or 30s, whenever he was. Yeah, for me, old hobo from The Simpsons, Kirk Douglas's best character <laughs> by far. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. <laughs> hey, before we continue um, real quick, so, uh, so it's actually in this scene that Moreau confronts him and he orders him to take the ant hill. And, of course, you know, Colonel Dax being, like, the one sympathetic, you know, leader in this entire movie uh, expresses that that's not going to be so easy and he's dubious and skeptical. I do have a clip of that, and we're going to go ahead and play it here real quick for some of our listeners, and we're going to be right back to talk about it. What sort of casualties do you anticipate, sir? Mm, say, 5% killed by our own barrage. It's a very generous allowance. 10% more than going through no man's land. And 20% more getting to the wire. That leaves 65% with the worst part of the job over. Let's say another 25% in actually taking the anthill. We're still left with a force more than adequate to hold it. General, you're saying that more than half my men will be killed. Yes, it's a terrible price to pay, Colonel. But we will have the anthill. But will we, sir? I'm depending on you, Colonel. All France is depending on you. Am I amusing you, Colonel? Not a bull, General. I don't need a flag waving in front of me to get me to charge. I don't think I like your comparison of the flag of France to a bullfighter's cape. I mean, nothing disrespectful to the flag of France. Sir. Patriotism may be old-fashioned, but show me a patriot and I'll show you an honest man. Well, not everyone has always thought so. Samuel Johnson had something else to say about patriotism. And what was that, may I ask? Well, nothing really. What do you mean, nothing really? Well, sir, nothing really important. Colonel, when I ask a question, it's always important. Now, who is this man? Samuel Johnson, sir. All right, now, what did he have to say about patriotism? He said it was the last refuge of a scoundrel, sir. Uh, I'm sorry, I meant nothing personal. You're tired, Dax. You're very tired. It's you who are exhausted, not your men. And it's my fault. I've given you one impossible task after another. You need rest. Well, you need it badly. And you rest, never would, either. Therefore, you're not going to have any say-so about it, Colonel. As from right now, I'm ordering you on indefinite furlough. General, you can't take me away from my men. You can't do that to me, Not sir. Not to you, Dax. For you. For your good and for the good of your men. The good of my men, sir. If a commanding officer lacks confidence, what can we expect of his men? Naturally, I don't want to relieve you, but I must have your enthusiastic support. Not once have you said that your men can take the anthill. We'll take the anthill. If any soldiers in the world can take it. We'll take the anthill. Okay, by the way, Ryan, before we continue, I don't know if this is just me. I literally thought this as I was watching it. I have it in my notes, which is that Moreau sounds exactly like white Keith David. Am I the only one? Is this just me? I mean, it's it's, it's Keith David. I mean the rhythms and the, the tonality of his voice, like, that's Keith David, just as a white British dude. <laughs> it's hard to explain, but like it's one of the once you hear it, you can't unhear it, man. I'm telling you. 
Well, you know, these are the kind of things we're we're cracking down on here on this podcast. Esoterica Cinema is what sets us apart. <laughs> we're finding who's Keith David, who's not. We gotta get to the bottom of these things. <laughs> these are this is what the listeners want to know. Need to know is this? Dude, there's going to be a bar trivia night, and one of the questions is going to be like, which actor sounds like white Keith David? And you're going to be like, oh, I know this one. You're welcome, people. But I don't. You're welcome. I don't. (laughs) I know. I don't know his name either. I just hope someone looked it up. He's so close, yet so far away. (laughs) I'm no good. No help. The interesting thing, though, kind of dovetailing from that a little bit, uh, is that I did think that it was kind of interesting to note how the performances themselves, maybe not so much Kirk Douglas, but all the other performances seemed really theatrical and very over the top. I don't yes. know if you felt the same way. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, and so it was interesting to yeah. see how that contrasted what was actually some pretty realistic filming in terms of the cinematography and the direction. It looks like the production design at the time must have been stellar because it didn't look bad. It looked totally passable these days, and it's, what, 70-something years later whatever. Well, uh, I thought that it was um, the, the the whole overall production was boosted uh, at this point in the film by the sound design because mm. uh, if you took away the explosions and the occasional bullets and and gunfire and things that were happening in the background, um, it, it did kind of feel like they were on a soundstage or a set or something like that when they were in their little uh, when they were in the trenches or in the in the in the holes and stuff like that. So. Um, I feel like the sound design, once we got to this stage in the film, really did a lot to bolster uh, kind of where we were at until we went out onto the battlefield. And then it got, then then shit got real. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the the size of the cast, you know, all the soldiers that he got uh, to run out. And it just felt like a very full film. Like it, it, it I, I don't know. I, I, I really, uh, I, I had a lot of fun um, going through this. And I thought this is what, what uh, going back to my earlier point, I thought this was what the film was going to be. I thought this is what we were in store for. And it's actually only really the first act, I think. Right. Would you, is that what, would you agree? Well, yeah. Well, I mean, I might even take it a step further and say, it's pretty much just the one scene where they try to rush yeah. the anthill and, and it just goes horribly awry because the only other scene might be, would be the scene before that, which is the one that takes place at night where there's like the, lieutenant i think he is and he's the he's the drunkard and he's got the two other guys and they have to go on like a night patrol mission and they get to this place where there's like the downed helicopter or plane and then the one guy goes to investigate and the drunkard lieutenant guy gets all flustered and ends up chucking a grenade because he's got the willies or whatever and then later we get what i thought was a really cool way of revealing that which is the bombs that are dropping from the sky light up the battlefield and then we see the soldier's dead body from the explosion of the grenade, knowing that he ended up killing one of his own soldiers. And so I thought that was really well done from a visual standpoint, as well as yep, to your point, absolutely. an audio standpoint. And I think both of those things work in concert very well. To your point, this is a smaller film, but because of the way that they do utilize the audio and video and the way that Kubrick frames his shots, it feels much larger than it is because... Yeah, I mean, that's. I think that's the thing that surprised both of us is how small a film this ultimately really is. There's a lot of, you know, two- and three-person dialogue-driven scenes. The quote-unquote action scene is really very short, not too much action. And, uh, 
So yeah, so it was definitely, like you say, you know, the idea of someone turning the war film on their head and that person being Kubrick is not exactly a stretch. I mean, this is a guy who's tried to, you know, divert every single genre trope. Like, I mean, that guy has literally made every single genre of film that's out there, right? He's made his sci-fi in 2001. He's made several war films. He's made his horror film with The Shining. You could argue he made a romance with Lolita. I mean, these are, he's he literally just check, 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 you know? Absolutely. I, uh, you know, and he even kind of somewhat left us with AI, which yeah, controversially true. I enjoyed. I so, um, really enjoyed that movie, dude. Interestingly yeah, enough, yeah. Uh, it, it's, have you watched it in the last, I don't know, seven years, 10 years? Yeah, probably, probably about that long. Yeah. The, I So when I was younger, like when that film, because I mean, dude, I think we were in what, high school, late high school when that film came out and uh, something like that. I was a little older than that, but yeah. Yeah. I remember like violently. I, I got you by film. a couple of years, buddy. Uh, yeah, that's true. I always forget that. But uh, yeah, but I, I mean, I defended the hell out of that film and, you know, there was a lot of people. I don't know why, but a lot of people were like really upset by the film. Like it's one thing if you think that film's OK, but there were people that like passionately disliked that film. I don't know if part of that too was, I mean, if you're going to take two diametrically opposed figures from an emotional standpoint, you couldn't really do much better than Spielberg and Kubrick, right? <laughs> I mean, everything Spielberg does is is warmth and heart and humanity and everything Kubrick does is cold and logic and, you know, man is a beast. And so I think that for maybe some people, it was hard to reconcile that juxtaposition because there was just different elements at play with the way that they approached it. Does yeah, that, that is an odd one. Yeah. No, no, it definitely does. It definitely does. I uh, uh, I mean, I, I was trying to, to rack my brain as you were describing that and think of two other directors that would be opposed to each other in that regard that would make each other's films and still be able to do something of quality. I don't know. Yeah. I couldn't think of anything, but uh, <laughs> it'd be like uh, the, if the Safdie brothers got together with Wes Anderson <laughs> or like if Chris Columbus uh, made a Paul Thomas Anderson script, you know what I mean? Like that's kind of odd. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Right. Um, You'd have like Mark Wahlberg doing lines of blow to like a John Williams score. That'd be fucking awesome, actually. I want this to happen. I think that was actually the director's cut of Training Day. You didn't catch the director's cut? <laughs> that was cool. Yeah. I love that John Williams score. Uh, yeah, man. So anyways, like I said, let's get back to the film here. We've got the next morning. It's after this failed attack. Complete abject failure, as everybody expected except for Moreau himself. No progress was made. Many lives were lost. And the one thing that we didn't mention either, Ryan, is there's that whole thing where when the offensive is going on, when France is trying to attack the anthill and take Germany's position, there's that whole scene where Moreau orders his own squad to fire on his own people. And if you remember, he gets on the phone and he's, he's, he's literally calling in the order, but then there's the, uh, 
He's like, I think he's like the artillery commander or something like that. And he's like, yeah, no, not going to happen, bro. You need to get a written affidavit. He's like, screw you. You've got to do it. I'm your superior. He's like, nah, not happening, <laughs> right. bro. Got to have a letter. Trying to pull rank on everybody. Yeah. Um, I'm going to slow you down and uh, and actually go back a little bit because there's something that happens uh, even before this, the night before. So uh, Dax comes in. He pulls in all his high-ranking uh, homies and get, gathers, rounds the troops, and he explains to them, you know, basically, we're going to take this anthill tomorrow. We've been ordered to do this thing. We're going to do the impossible, uh, get some rest, uh, and bright and early, you know. And then they're asking what the weather is going to be like. And, and he's like, well, it's going to be sunny and beautiful. And uh, mm-hmm. so we have no cover. We have nothing going for us. We're up against everything. It's going to suck. Most of us are going to die, but we've been ordered to do this. And so we got to go do it and uh, do the best we can. And then we go to the bunks of uh, two of our soldiers that were with the rest of the film, whose name elude me at the moment. Uh, I should know that. I don't. I uh, apologize. Um, but they uh, have a little bunk bed discussion. And to me, this discussion is kind of what this movie is about. And I, I, I wanted to bring this up because I was curious on, on your opinions. But basically, uh, they discuss... Um, how they want to die or what dying is to them and what really scares them more, the death or the pain and all of these uh, existential things that might cross your mind if you're heading towards your sudden doom the next day uh, with some of your you know brothers in arms. And so um, I just kind of felt like that. I wrote in my notes, you know, this movie kind of gets summed up with how do you want to die? And we follow that throughout the rest of the film. I know it's an anti-war film. I know it, uh, you know, makes statements about uh, bureaucracy and leadership, and uh, the red tape that gets in the way of human life, et cetera, et cetera. Things we're seeing in our own uh, government and our own country to this day. Uh, but uh, it, it's also to me about how do you want to die, and what scares you about death, or what do you embrace about it, and so on. And um, uh, I, I really thought that was very profound. That that you know, little off the cuff discussion that, uh, you could have just passed right over. Um, I thought, you know, I, I really enjoyed that, that little diatribe that they went on. Yeah. Well, and it brings up an interesting point because I think that if I remember correctly, this is the same scene where at least one of the men talks about how people aren't really afraid of dying. They're afraid of specifically dying in pain and that it's not the death they're afraid right. of. It's the pain that they're afraid of. And I thought that was a really salient point. That is something that it kind of makes sense when you stop and think about it, but it's not maybe something for me, it's not something that I had always necessarily considered, but the more you think about it, like the more that seems true, you know, people don't, as long as they can go out, you know, painless, easy, you know, that, then it, then it, it carries a lot less of that sting. So I can't say I disagree with it. I don't have anything to add to it. It was just kind of a point where I was like, oh, that's, that's really interesting. I didn't consider that, but he's absolutely right. Yeah, I just wanted to unwind a minute and talk about that scene because uh, that, that one really spoke to me. I thought that was, you know, we're in the middle of war and, and there's a lot of stuff going on. It's And they're throwing stuff at you pretty fast at this point uh, because we're, you know, everything's escalating and ramping up. They're building tension. Uh, and then we kind of stop for a minute and we go to these uh, soldiers in their bunks and they and we get to see what's kind of going on in their head as they're facing sudden doom. And I, I just thought that was really uh, I always love it when movies kind of get in the in the head 
in the heads of, of your characters that are about to go through a psychological scarring or emotional scarring experience and kind of let you, you know, kind of roll around in it for a little while. And he did. And I enjoyed that. Yeah, totally agree, man. It really allows you to appreciate where the characters are coming from. As a filmmaker, it gives you the opportunity to explore some of the different reactions, you know, so you have different characters with different personalities reacting in different ways to the events that are transpiring before and around them. And so it really gives you something to explore. Yeah, I absolutely understand that. So, so yeah, then we get to the next day. They wake up and, and we're storming the anthill. Shit's going awry. And uh, we get to what you were talking about, where uh, Kirk Douglas's crew, uh, you know, gets out of the trenches and starts going across the wire. They get across the dead zone and then they start getting pinned down really bad. And he realizes that all the men did not get out of the trenches because once the Germans realized what the fuck was going on, they pinned down everybody. They had them. Um, mm-hmm you know, uh, dead, dead to rights. And so, uh, some of the men got out and they're being held down in the dead zone. A lot of men are getting killed and he realizes that he has no reinforcement. So he runs back to go try to get those men out. And they're like, fuck that. We can't get out of here. We're being, we're pinned down. And he realizes they're not, uh, able to, to leave. And so, uh, you know, he's, he's kind of, kind of uh, being held down uh, himself at this moment. And that is when, uh, to your point, which you were talking about, where the general was firing on his own men to try to uh, push them out, more or less, um, saying, yo, you think it's bad out there? I'm about to shoot some mortars in your trenches. (laughs) So you might as well get out there, folks. So, uh, and and that didn't go over well. Nobody allowed him to do that, right? Correct, yeah, yeah. And that that ends up coming back to bite him in the ass later as well. So... The next day, after the plan goes awry, we learn that Moreau is determined to court-martial 100 of the men for cowardice in the face of war. And this would later be negotiated down to just three, one from each company. And immediately, Colonel Dax, being the honorable guy that he is, offers to defend the men. He mentions the fact that he was like a criminal lawyer back in his you know civilian life or whatever. And uh, so he takes up that mantle and defends them in what we quickly learn is not going to be a fair trial whatsoever. Right off the bat, he's stonewalled every step of the way. And we get this big blowhard speech from the prosecutor about uh, making sure to convict, blah, blah, blah. And then immediately after that, Dax gets up and gives something of a rousing speech of his own with some awesome photography and some awesome tracking that while we're not able to show you, you can imagine as we play you this clip from Paths of Glory. Gentlemen of the court, there are times when I'm ashamed to be a member of the human race and this is one such occasion. It's impossible for me to summarize the case for the defense since the court never allowed me a reasonable opportunity to present my case. Are you protesting the authenticity of this court? Yes, sir. I protest against being prevented from introducing evidence that I consider vital to the defense. The prosecution presented no witnesses. There has never been a written indictment of charges made against the defendants. And lastly, I protest against the fact that no stenographic records of this trial have been kept.
The attack yesterday morning is no stake on the honor of France. And certainly no disgrace to the fighting men of this nation. But this court-martial is such a stake and such a disgrace. The case made against these men is a mockery of all human justice. Gentlemen of the court, to find these men guilty will be a crime to haunt each of you to the day you die. I can't believe that the noblest impulse of man, his compassion for another, can be completely dead here. Therefore, I humbly beg you, show mercy to these men. So that's a great speech, Ryan. Kirk is still bringing that fire. And regardless, entirely ineffective as all three men are sentenced to death in what is clearly a kangaroo court. And that night, Kirk Douglas, Dax... Well, it, it should be mentioned he's in court without a shirt on, still wearing the mom jeans. So <laughs> hard to take him seriously as a judge. You know, he's pleading his case. He's doing his, uh, you know, best Tom Cruise, a few good men, laying it down. Man, put a shirt on, throw a tie, have some respect. <laughs> court. I really don't remember that, but uh, interesting. <laughs> uh, I might have to go back and rewatch it. Just uh, feel like that was well, probably central to the scene. This is kind of where this is where the uh, the movie shifts gears. This is what we were talking about earlier, where, you know, you, you, I thought I was watching a war movie, war as hell, you know, all gritty, blah, blah, blah. And then, uh, you know, all of a sudden now, uh, just like I said, we're, we're almost in a few good men like this all turns into a courtroom drama where lives are in the balance of our our three soldiers and uh, for, for cowardice. And you have these, you know, generals still playing. Uh, man, these generals, these generals are some smug motherfuckers. <laughs> you know, all this courtroom scene, dude, they're all sitting there stroking their beards. They're like, yeah, what you say is true, but it's like, <laughs> man, you smug motherfucker. <laughs> it's, it's definitely a commentary on that whole aristocracy and authority. And I mean, look, dude, like filmmakers are just naturally the type to rebel against authority, right? Like. So it, right, right, it, yeah. It, well, especially Kubrick, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it makes sense that you know, rarely do we see this movie where the protagonist is like, "Hey guys, we really need to listen to our superiors." Okay, authority <laughs> knows much better than we do, and we should all just take a step back and respect said authority and follow their lead. I, I've missed a lot that, of those types of films, right? Maybe you've seen that. Would have been an awesome courtroom speech. <laughs> we should go make that movie, ladies and gentlemen of the jury. Everything they said is one hundred percent right. The movie is over. Thank you. <laughs> Bureaucracy exists for a reason. <laughs> um, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. But I mean, it also doesn't spend. I mean, it's not a courtroom drama in the sense that we do get that one scene, but it's really the whole courtroom scene is is one one long scene. You know, we don't go back there. It's about, what, 10, 15 minutes, maybe. And then it's over. They get sentenced to death. And then that night we see Colonel Dax go to. I think his name's Brulard. He's like the president. And he basically tells him about Moreau's orders to fire on his own men and how he brought these sworn statements from various soldiers that were there that witnessed the event. And, you know, we're not exactly sure if that's going to turn anything or not right off the bat. But honestly, what I thought was going to happen, because the president, like, physically takes the orders, this Brulard guy, physically takes the statements and bails. And I thought he was just going to be doing one of those things like, uh, you know, Kirk Douglas is going to bring it up later. Hey, let me see those statements. He's going to be like, 
Oh, what statements? I don't know what you're talking about. What statements? Like, I thought it, I thought that's what he was going to do, and he was going to try to bury the evidence and make Moreau look better. That's not what ends up happening. These guys are all leveraging things uh, to make themselves better and advance their career uh, any chance they get. And yes. uh, in this scene, Kirk Douglas kind of proposed to him uh, a way that he could use this is like, what are you going to do? Yeah, there's two ways this is going to go down. You know, you're either going to let this leak and then you're going to look like you sided with this guy or you can be on the right side of history. Help me out. And you're going to look like a hero. And he's like a hero. Eh? Mm. <laughs> and so he took the notes and, you know, he bailed back to his little party that Kirk Douglas had pulled him out of. Yeah. By the way, Kirk Douglas still not wearing a shirt. <laughs> <laughs> well, the other thing that they do, the other thing that they mentioned, too, is the Brulard character. He talks about one of the reasons that he doesn't want to do it is because they use executions to help maintain a sense of law and order among the people. That right, right. Yeah. He wanted to make examples out of these correct. people to, to help fill the men with vim and vigor and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Correct. And then from there, we do get a nice scene with the prisoners that's a little more of what you touched on earlier in terms of, you know, getting those moments and those inner workings of some of the ancillary characters' psychologies. So we're in with the prisoners and they're inside. And, you know, it's where the priest has come to basically give them their last rites. What did you think of that scene, Ryan? Uh, I love that you said... uh uh, we deal with the in, in, ancillary uh, characters' uh, psychologies. I wrote, Esoterica Cinema has me deal with some heavy-ass shit, bro. That's in, that's in my notes right here. So I need to read more, apparently. Uh, that's the first thing I'm learning today. Um, yeah, I loved all of this. I thought that it was, you know, a really... Um, I mean, it was a bummer. It was a little... You know, it was a pretty sad scene watching these three men deal with death. Here we are again. This kind of comes full circle with what I was saying earlier about how do you want to die? We started off with these men um, in the bunker dealing with go going into battle and how, and they thought they were going to die like that. Now they, now they know how they're going to die and, and it's actually going to be quick and hopefully painless. And yet still uh, they're not too keen on it. Uh, they, they, <laughs> they didn't change their minds about death uh, by swapping out how they were going to die. So um and they deal with it in different ways. And, of course, a, a, a preacher comes in, a religious person to absolve them of their sins and, and uh, make let them make peace with God if they want. And each of the three men uh, kind of deal with this whole thing in a different way, uh, one of which uh, gets knocked the F out. And <laughs> he's got it done for the rest of the movie. And he's my favorite. He's yeah. my absolute favorite. I um, loved him as well. I don't want to spoil anything. We'll get, we'll get what there. What are you talking moment. about? Um, Our entire um, program is one giant spoiler. <laughs> That's literally <laughs> what we I don't want to jump right to the show, bro. I don't want to jump away. I don't wanna, okay. Well, I mean, when they line him up, man, and he's, he's been knocked out for fucking, I don't know, probably 24 hours or 12 hours. I yeah. mean, it was a long time. He's been out cold and, uh, they bring him out. To uh to the firing squad on a gurney, yeah. to carry his ass out there. They prop the gurney up and they tie in the gurney to the pole with the rest <laughs> of them, with the other guys, and then they pinch his cheek to wake him up. They're like, "Hey, hey, <laughs> hey, hey, you're gonna die now." <laughs> I fucking love that shit. That was so brilliant. Yeah. So oh, that man. actually brings up a really interesting fact that I had read about. Uh, you know, I don't. 
we don't really do too much research in terms of trying to figure out the film, but every now and then you'll come across a fact when we're doing our summaries and things like that. And uh, I had actually read a story. So as I mentioned earlier, this was a major studio release for Kubrick. It was earlier in his career, so he didn't have the confidence that he would have later in his career. And so he actually was willing to make a concession for the studio that I can't imagine he would have been willing to make later on in his life at all. And that's that even though – because this was based on a book. I don't believe we mentioned that. And even though in the book – I did in my summary. Oh, you did. Good. Awesome. Well, I need to listen to you more, buddy. My wife tells me the same thing for what it's <laughs> you, worth. You, you really do. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but yeah, so uh, in the book, they get executed, and the studio, of course, because studio execs always want the happy ending, was like, hey, do you think we could do something about those guys dying? And Kubrick actually relented, and Kubrick said, yeah, we'll go ahead and we'll rewrite it so that those three guys survive, and they're saved at the last minute by one reason or another. And they actually went and reshot, like they rewrote it, and then they either started or finished reshooting. And then Kirk Douglas found out. And, of course, he was shirtless at the time, so he walks up to Stanley, and he's <laughs> like, Hey, Kubrick, what the hell? I heard you redid this scene, and not gonna fly, you need to change it back to the way it was written, because that actually says something, and it has meaning behind it. And so Kirk Douglas made Stanley Kubrick change it back to the way that it was. And he's probably just like some little kid in between mom and dad. Like, I don't know. They're fighting. Dad tells me to do this. And mom tells me to do this. I'm just trying to make everyone happy. <laughs> I mean, l little known fact, Kirk Douglas has nipple rings and <laughs> it's kind of intimidating. He was actually the first to get nipple rings. Like, not even to popularize it, but he was literally <laughs> the first person because at the time everyone thought it was crazy. And they're like, Kirk Douglas, you, 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 you can't possibly pierce your nipples. And then he would give them that look, you know, with his really clenched jaw. <laughs> and they were like, actually, you know what? Nipple rings sound like a really good idea, Mr. Douglas. Can I, can I attach them for you? And that's, and that's how nipple rings were born. It, well, see, this is why you tune into this podcast, everybody. <laughs> you know, you gotta know. Dropping knowledge that's, on the people, man. Yeah, you yeah, you got to know that just... Kirk Douglas had washboard abs, high-waisted jeans, and also <laughs> started nipple rings. These are facts, people. Yep. So if you're out there and you're, you know, you're masturbating right now and you're almost a climax, <laughs> we'll, we'll get you there. Just stick with us. We're getting to it. Can you do like a sexy Kirk Douglas for like any of the ladies or gentlemen? We don't discriminate. I wish I wish I could do a good Kirk Douglas impression. It it would quickly turn into a Charlton Heston impression. You know, and, uh, <laughs> no one needs that. I was thinking of <laughs> a Kirk that, Douglas impression in my head, and it just came out Charlton Heston. It was like, "Hello, girls, how are you doing today?" Yeah, yeah damn dirty apes, and then it just goes downhill from there. My cold dead hands, and it's like, Jesus, that's not Kirk Douglas. <laughs> So anyways, after the execution, Ryan. <laughs> right, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> so anyways, but seriously, after the execution. Uh, so Dax is dining with Moreau and the Brillard guy. And that's when Brillard basically calls out Moreau. He's like, oh, look at these little affidavits I got here. You know, fan him around a little bit. And, you know, Moreau's like, what? what? Like, I don't know what that is. It's preposterous. <laughs> and so, you know, he leaps. And, That's uh, a terrific impression of this entire movie. 
Um, so he leaves. He's all offended. And then Brulard offers Dax the job, Moreau's old job. And, you know, Dax literally tells him to go to hell. And Brulard's really surprised because he assumed that this whole thing was a bit of gamesmanship on behalf of Dax so that he could make a play for his job. And I actually have a clip for that that we're going to play here real quick, Ryan. It's it's Mr. Douglas bringing that heat. Let's listen. Colonel Dax, how would you like a General Miro's job? His what, sir? His job. Let me get this straight, sir. You're offering me General Miro's command? Come, come, Colonel Dax, don't overdo the surprise. You've been after the job from the start. We all know that, my boy. There may be many things, sir. I'm not your boy. Well, I certainly didn't mean to imply any biological relationship. I'm not your boy in any sense. You're trying to provoke me, Colonel? Well, why should I want to do that? Exactly. It would be a pity to lose your promotion before you get it. A promotion you have so very carefully planned for. Sir, would you like me to suggest what you can do with that promotion? Colonel Dax! You will apologize at once or I shall be placed under arrest. I apologize for not being entirely honest with you. I apologize for not revealing my true feelings. I apologize, sir, for not telling you sooner that you're a degenerate, sadistic old man. And you can go to hell before I apologize to you now or ever again. Colonel Dax, you're a disappointment to me. You have spoiled the keenness of your mind by wallowing in sentimentality. You really did want to save those men. And you were not angling for Miro's command. You're an idealist. And I pity you, as I would the village idiot. We're fighting a war, Dax, a war that we've got to win. Those men didn't fight, so they were shot. You bring charges against General Miro, so I insist that he answer them. Wherein have I done wrong? And Ryan, I think this illustrates one of the great things about the Dax character, which is that, look, dude, you and I are some cynical-ass cats, dude. For sure. Like, no doubt about that. But that being said, it's always nice to have just a really genuine, good-hearted character that cuts through the bullshit. And he's literally the only person in this entire movie who has a position of authority who's, like, not cynical and who hasn't just given up on the idea of leadership and what it means to be a leader and what it means to command men and take them into battle. Dax is purely honorable with regard to the fact that he only wants to do well for and by himself and his men in the name of his country and he's caught up in all of this political bullshit and all of these people who are just trying to advance their career and they'll happily sacrifice the needs of the many for the needs of the few and so there's that built-in admiration that we have for the Dax character and it only gets reinforced when you listen to something like that he literally tells him to go to hell and uh, so I loved, loved the Dax character. Obviously, him being the only honorable one amongst all of this, it makes it a little bit easier for us to connect with him in that regard. But, uh, and then from there, we get the final scene, which is a really, really interesting scene, Ryan. And uh, I'm actually going to let you go ahead and take this one and uh, set it up for us and let us know kind of what you thought about everything. Yeah, it was an emotional turn where we saw the softer side of, of war, I guess, but then also, so they, he, uh, after all that goes down, Kirk Douglas is wandering the, uh, 
the the barracks or the base mm-hmm. and uh, ends up in a little pub, if you will. Is this the scene you're talking about? Yes, sir. Yeah, so he gets in there and uh, a almost a carnival barker uh, comes out. <laughs> Step yeah. right up. Let me show you what I got. <laughs> yeah, and he starts much. presenting this uh, beautiful German woman who, by the way, I don't know if you know this, but is played by Stanley Kubrick's wife oh. uh, of his... His entire life, like his wife, wife. Wow. Uh, that no stuck clue. with him the entire way through his death. Um, and so beautiful woman. And yeah, uh, lovely. Wheels are on out there and says, you got to hear her sing, ladies and gentlemen. She's got a voice like an angel and and introduces her. And all the, uh, you know, soldiers are here, here. And they're all whistling and, you know, oh, shake it and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's turning into a little risque USO show, if you will. Uh, but only this awkward <laughs> captive Russian or a German woman uh, on stage unwillingly. And uh, she, finally she starts singing and uh, and touches all the soldiers emotionally. They all start to get choked up and start to sing with her or hum along with her. They yeah. know the tune. And uh, uh, I, it was a weird turning of the tides because, uh, you know, in, in just a moment uh, of her singing, they turn from, you know, whistling chauvinists and catcalling and all of these things to uh, they start to get, you know, a little choked up and maybe they see a piece of their mother in her or something like that. But, uh, you know, it's almost like the Lost Boys when Wendy's singing uh, to the Lost Boys and Peter Pan and they all start to, you know, they were all tough and rough against Captain Hook and then now they're all, you know, soft and, and going to bed. So, uh, wow. <laughs> soldiers, I just heard your mother uh, and mine in little... my head. That's crazy. I haven't thought about that song in like 20 years, man. That's nuts. <laughs> Well, you're welcome. And so, uh, yeah, they get a little choked up. They get a little teary-eyed. And, uh, yeah, then Michael Douglas is like, back to fucking work, bro. And he, like, leaves the bar, and uh, he goes storming back. So, And that's kind of how the movie ends. Yeah, yeah. And I did actually think that was a rather resonant moment. And I think that what was going on there is I think that – because you're right. Like, they didn't – they couldn't sing along with her because she's singing in German, and they're French, and they don't speak German. But what they start to do is they start to hum the melody of the song that she's singing. And so, you know, within a very brief period of time, suddenly they're all humming this melody that this German girl's singing. And there becomes a connection between them because, you know, at first she's, you know, understandably got tears rolling down her cheeks as they're just kind of, like you say, hooting and hollering and, hey, take it off, baby, blah, 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 whatever, you know, stupid shit people do. And uh, very quickly, and I think that it was just, I think that she was... It was her honest and raw emotions kind of coming through that song that reminded them that like, oh, yeah, this isn't like a strip club. This is a girl that is in the middle of a war. She's a prisoner of war. And there was something about that moment and that song that made them remember that. The other thing, too, is that Dax is going back to the bar to tell the soldiers that they have to go back to war, that they're going to have to go back to the front and they're going to have to go make another charge and they're probably all going to die as it is. And so I think that when you understand that and couple it with the fact that, you know, she's again been taken hostage and it was just sort of this connection of like, oh yeah, we're, we're all taken hostage. All of us are hostage to the whims and desires of these people with much more authority and power than we have and whatever the situation, we're all basically being held captive. We're all prisoners of war in our own regard as it relates to us specifically. And so I think that they bond over that. 
and Dax Jesus. knows. Yeah, that's heavy shit. Yeah, and Dax knows, and I think he just it, it's 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 a lot for him too, and he knows that you know these kids and these men have been put in a shit position, and he just can't bring himself to interrupt the moment, and so he's just like, you know what, fuck it, man, I'm out of here. He bails. So, yeah. Great film, man. I really enjoyed it. To your point, I thought I was getting a more traditional war film. You know, I thought I was in for like Stanley Kubrick's Platoon, basically, right? But we didn't get Should've that. Should have known better. I know, yeah. Should have known better, though. Yeah, we got a much better film. I mean, I don't know how you feel about Platoon. I think it's ridiculous and overwrought and melodramatic and just absurd. But this is not that film. This is a really sobering and poignant look at war. And I'll tell you what, Ryan, why don't you go ahead? Because, uh, you know, we always wrap up each program with our three adjectives as well as our star rating. Why don't you give us your three adjectives for this film? I uh, I started off with gritty because it is. It's very gritty. Um, and, you know, the with the budget and the scope of the film being what it was, I know it was a studio film, but it was, you know, kind of a smaller picture. And uh, uh, definitely, you know, what he wasn't playing with 2001 uh, technology at that point so uh it was it was pretty gritty and and you're down in the trenches and shit's going down and it, and uh it's also very promising because i think it shows to uh, you said this many many times throughout this episode where uh it shows us a lot of what kubrick was about to to drop on us and uh this is kind of the film to me where you know i really kind of saw a lot of the because right after this he makes spartacus and then he goes right in the, you know i think to do dr strange love and a couple others 2001s right after that i think so uh you know there's there's a lot of uh you know really really good shit that he's about to drop on us right after this movie mm-hmm. uh the next one with kirk douglas no less and uh war is hell i know that's not a <laughs> word but damn it i mean the bureaucracy of it all people suck uh you know leadership and and uh, uh he did a he made a pretty strong argument for not liking authority. I I have to really agree with him. War is hell, <laughs> gritty, promising. Excellent. Yeah, dude, those are great. For me, so my first one is that it's a powerful film. Uh, I think that it's one of these films. And look, not just powerful like in the way that like critically like oh my god, it's powerful, but it's it's powerful in the way that it says so much through so little. You know, like a lot of films they kind of have disposable scenes, disposable moments, but you, these 88 minutes, like you needed every single one of those, you know, there's no, there's no waste. And because of that, each scene really stands out. Like, I'll be honest with you, Ryan, sometimes I watch a movie and it's one of those things where, you know, if it's just like a, a three star film that I'm not super into, or, you know, it's overly complex or something like I'll walk out retaining like 20% of what I just watched. Right. But this is one of those movies where each scene landed for me, you know, whether it was a performance, yeah, whether no, it I was agree. a relationship, whether it was a specific commentary, each and every scene landed with power. And so it stuck with me. I was impressed by that. From there, I believe that this is an assured film. And I think that this is kind of what we were talking about with regard to Kubrick as a filmmaker. This doesn't feel like the work of someone who doesn't know what he's doing yet. I think that when we talk about how we're going to see a lot of the hallmarks of his visual filmmaking language, I think that this is kind of where all that comes together. I mean, I've seen most of his films at this point, except for, you know, Spartacus and, you know, one or two of his earlier ones. And, and this has all of those elements that we talk about. So this is a filmmaker who's finally understanding that, you know what? Yeah, I am a good filmmaker. I do understand the medium. 
I can direct Kirk Douglas, shirt or no shirt, I'm going to tell him what to do. Fuck that guy. <laughs> and uh, so we really see him growing into his own. The third adjective that I have is juxtaposed. And I touched on this earlier, but I really appreciate when filmmakers, musicians, whoever it is, anytime an artist can take disparate elements that don't necessarily go together and weave them in such a way that even though they shouldn't really work, they do. I'm always very impressed by that. I appreciate that. It's a unique take on the material, at least for me. And so, again, the way that the theatrical performances juxtapose what you referred to as the gritty realism of it, uh, the the way that the Colonel Dax character, the lone position of authority juxtaposes the rest of authority with regard to the fact that he's going to do the right thing and literally everyone else is corrupted and selfish, self-directed, all of those things. So anytime you can sort of balance these different extreme elements against one another, I think it makes for great filmmaking or whatever your medium is. And so powerful, assured, juxtaposed, I believe represents Paths of Glory very well. Ryan, we are going to finish with my star rating and your grade rating. Tell us what you got for your grade, man. Oh, I'm giving this one a good solid A. Uh, you, you know, it's not an A+, plus, maybe an A-, minus. you know, it's on the low A, you know, because you start to get into, you know, uh, some of his masterpieces or any masterpiece for that uh, example, and, and you put this against it. I, I can't give it like an A plus, but it's it's a good solid A minus though. It was a very enjoyable film, and it wasn't that long. It was like we were in, we were out. Every fi- uh, scene had purpose, it had a great pace, um, and I never you know felt strung along or or I never was looking at my phone or or was distracted. I was engaged the whole time. Solid A minus. Excellent, man. Yeah, as usual, we're trending right about the same rating my star rating is a solid four and a half out of five stars this is a movie that isn't necessarily perfect but it gets pretty damn close and part of it is i think just you know it because it is a smaller scoped film it is probably not it's like a degree of difficulty rating right it it does it didn't have not to sound like not giving him the credit that is due for this film, but like it wasn't an achievement on the scale of a 2001 or a clockwork orange or something like that. Not to take away from what the film, like the film is, is, is pretty damn perfect for what it wants to be, but it's just, you know, again, when you take in the scope of his career and, you know, we're going to keep you in the trenches this whole time versus, you know, taking you out to space. I think four and a half is probably about as good as you can get on a film like this. So very, very good movie. Loved every minute of it. Yeah, I think we're being pretty generous. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, listen, guys, we're going to go ahead and take a quick commercial break. And then when we come back, we are going to talk some high and low with you guys. Stick around. From the imagination of acclaimed author Ashton McCauley comes the next great antihero in American fiction. His name is Nick Ventner, alcoholic by trade and monster hunter by profession. When Nick gets hired by a wealthy benefactor to find the lost gates of Shangri-La, it's up to him and his crotchety companion, James, to deliver the goods. The two soon find themselves on the adventure of a lifetime, and in addition to being chased by Nick's longtime rival, Manchester, they soon find themselves being hunted by a mythical and elusive yeti that has been terrorizing the Himalayas. Featuring non-stop action and an acerbic wit, 
Whiteout by Ashton McCauley is a thriller-minute page-turner you won't be able to put down until it's finished. You can find Whiteout in ebook, hardcover, and paperback versions online and everywhere books are sold. Published by Aberrant Literature. Hey guys, welcome back. As we mentioned at the top of the show, we are going to look at a second film here, and that film is Akira Kurosawa's High and Low. Ryan, I believe you have a description for us, right? I do. Uh, from 1963, we're going back um, to talk about uh, Toshiro Mifune is unforgettable as Kingo Do- uh, Gondo, a wealthy industrialist whose family becomes the target of a cold-blooded kidnapper in High and Low, the highly influential domestic drama and police procedural from director Akira Kurosawa. Adapting Ed McBain's detective novel, King's Ransom, Kurosawa moves effortlessly from compelling race-against-time thriller to exacting social commentary, creating a diabolical treatise on uh, contemporary Japanese society. Oh, my God, that's a long uh, (laughs) explanation. Jesus. The fuck? All right. Well, you know, hey, look, the description matches the movie. This is a long one. And... uh, Pretty epically length movie, like epic that. description. There you go. Yep, there totally you go. matches. So <laughs> I plotted my way through it. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> you get it. It's a de- it's a detective movie about kidnapping and uh, you know movement of wealth and so on. We've been there. Absolutely. And look, we are going to have plenty of time to get into the specifics of this film. There is a lot to unpack in this one. Very good film. Uh, right off the bat, do want to say enjoyed it a lot. Ryan, did you dig it? I loved it. Yeah, absolutely. Right on, man. Um, so, ready for this, What's space that? fans? What's that? Here's another. Uh, here's another cinematic confession. <laughs> All right, let's um, hear it. This is my uh, this. Jesus, this is so hard to talk about. This is, uh, <laughs> it's all right, dude. This is my we, first. We, you know what? This is my first Kurosawa do, movie. What? Yeah, no. How is that? How is that possible, dude? Like, I don't even. I don't even know, man. I I I have no defense for myself. I almost feel like I remember us having discussions about his work. I feel like I feel like you just sort of like BS'd your way through a lot of cocktail parties (laughs) (laughs) over the years. Yes, yes, Rashomon. Uh huh. Oh, of course. Yes, Seven Samurai. Of course. Right. Yeah. Oh no. I totally (laughs) mean that. Yeah. I mean that's. You know, wow, that's what I've been crazy, doing this though. whole podcast. Yeah, and, exactly. Uh, you, you busted me. Um, you know what, I don't dude? watch any of these films. Yeah, <laughs> no. I mean, I, what, like, we were talking about this, and we really should make some sort of, like, cinematic confessions or cinematic sins program or something. Because, like, and everybody listening to, dude, all of us have films that we should have watched, director's work that we should have checked out, actor's work, etc. Everybody has gaps in their film history knowledge. It's just inescapable. There is way too much content. So if you're the type of person or the type of people like we are where you take in a lot of different genres, dude, like it's it, it what I'm saying is I forgive you. It's I it took it. a minute. Thank you. It took a minute, but I worked through it here with you and with our listeners. You feel better now? Do you feel better? I, I do. Did yeah. I help you through something? It All was right. well, there that we was go. really jarring, dude. Yeah, no, <laughs> it was really jarring. I'm glad I could. Even in the I middle of you. COVID, that was extremely jarring. Well, man, yeah, that's, uh... that that's saying something, right? So, so high and low, 1963, uh, Kurosawa, my first Kurosawa movie, Play School, my first Kurosawa movie, and uh, I liked it a lot. I'm yeah. definitely going to be getting to some other his films. I think you had told me at one point that we actually have a few of his films on this list. So we I'll certainly be getting to do. Them sooner or later. So yeah, I'm yeah. Kick me off. 
<laughs> are you kidding i'm gonna drag you kicking and streaming dude. you're not going anywhere even if you want to even if i have to sit you even if i have to sit you through the lives of others 17 times like alex from a clockwork orange status just holding oh, your man, eyes open be... strapped down to a that chair terrible i'm keeping you around dude um so yeah let's, this let's movie, get into the movie shall we high and low yeah absolutely so when we start this movie we open up on a credit sequence that is overlaid across these really grimy shots of like an industrial sector. We get these wide landscapes showing off the busy streets. And then right from there, really quickly, juxtaposing shot, we're inside looking at uh, inside a room that is looking at the same city, but from the vantage point of a really sort of like high end looking balcony. And there's several oh, but before that, though, Jason. They uh, they cue us in on the titles with some spooky music, <laughs> and it's really dramatic. And then uh, and then we go inside. <laughs> we go inside this. Uh, I guess it's an apartment or a flat, and uh, we meet our characters. Anyway, I just had to interject because the spooky oh, yeah. music needed to be talked about. <laughs> well, and that's funny too because you know I was gonna bring this up later, but uh, since it's here now, like. This is a movie that were it really didn't use the score that much. I'm sure you took note of that too. Like it's almost like a you don't want to call it a silent film, but in terms of background music and any sort of score driving a lot of the emotion no, or the thrill, like yeah, they really just let the writing and the acting do all of the work on this, which was really interesting. If I recall, I think it worked to its benefit. I might be getting this wrong, but I think the music was primarily used to like sync your scenes together and yeah. uh, give us a, a bit of a bridge. Mm-hmm. Um, the old like 1960s wind down and then it goes to the next <laughs> yeah yeah and then there's a couple times later where they use the like uh, sort of like slinky like David Lynch barroom smoky jazz lounge type oh, yeah. of music the absolutely like that type of stuff I think there was a uh, picture of Satchmo on the jazz club <laughs> or uh, later in the film true story so we're inside so- this room And there's a bunch of dudes and they're sitting around a table and they're all clearly very important. And they're arguing over something that we soon find out is shoes. Now, to be honest, Ryan, when I found out it was about shoes, I was like, oh, am I really going to be into this? This could be dry. I don't know how, but they made (laughs) shoes really fascinating, man. Like I was really into this and I was like, well, no, the guy doesn't want to make crap shoes. And you guys need to stop putting profits ahead of, (laughs) of quality. Like, come on, Kingo's a good guy to stop busting his balls. Like. Uh, it was, it was just, like I said, for, and it was also funny that the, the company is called national shoe company. It sounds like yeah, it's the, like a subsidiary of the Acme corporation or something like that. <laughs> like, very generic. <laughs> and it's funny too, because also like, I don't, I, I know nothing of like Japanese culture in terms of like commerce over there. And like, do they have, is that like a reference to the fact that they have these very like descriptive names? You know, there's like, you know, Japanese nail company and. You know, like whatever. And then uh, or is it because like if that was an American film, like you would absolutely 100 percent believe that was satire. Right. Like, oh, they call it National Shoe Company. They're making fun of it. I don't know if that was not or not, but I feel like it's besides the point. So anyway, they're yeah, talking. I don't know. I mean, they're, they, they could just be government provided shoes or something. You know, <laughs> the shoes of the state. <laughs> Stasi shoe company Tommy shoes. Yeah, they only come in red. <laughs> So anyways, so there's certain of these board members, they're talking to our protagonist, Kingo, and uh, they're talking to him about how they should be making cheap, low-quality shoes because it's going to increase their profitability and the rate of consumption. 
but the current president isn't going to let them because he wants to make quality shoes. But it's said that if they put their shares together, that they could take majority control and they could basically make this power play and oust the old man and sort of, you know, stage a coup of sorts. And immediately, our protagonist, played by, as you mentioned before, uh, Toshiro Mifune, he gets really upset by the entire idea, doesn't want to attach his name to crap products. He is looking at it from a long-term perspective, wants to make modern, stylish shoes, but they're still quality, and they're going to get, you know, long-term customer Built allegiance. Yeah, exactly. But it's going to be at the expense of short-term profitability, and this upsets the other members of the board, as we've seen play out a thousand times in these sorts of films. And, uh, you know, so, Ryan, let, let, I want to ask you one thing, right? So you're in the filmmaking industry, or at least the entertainment industry, television, commercials, what have you. Do you have to consider a lot of things like, you know, profitability and value proposition that often? Or are these kind of foreign terms to you? Uh, yeah, that's that's above my pay grade. I'm an honest <laughs> <that> guy. <laughs> yeah, so let me, let me tell you, dude, because I'm in sales. And it's just like, so as someone who's been doing sales for close to 10 years now or something like that, like, this is every damn conversation you hear every damn day all the time and it's so frustrating dude it's so frustrating because like whereas this movie kind of shows a reverence to the kingo character and the president for making like quality shit because kurosawa is obviously a man of good taste and of good quality he makes excellent films and so it's just it's so annoying to hear these conversations time and time again about how all of these like various people and these corporations just want to make shit dude like they just want to make shit and they want they want to make stuff that will break so that they can sell you more of it and it just contributes to this overall sort of like pay to live approach to society that we have and like i like i said like when i'm watching this dude it just it frustrates me because i don't know that i mean obviously this has been around forever but it's just like it's taken on such a huge crazy sort of monumental part of our society just this drive for profit 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 and no one makes good shit anymore and everyone makes crap to break and like and also dude like what the fuck is up with commoditizing basic necessities man like every like here's the thing dude like the only reason that we have to like go and work these shit jobs as much as we do is because everything that we need to survive as people has been commoditized, dude. Like, you want a roof over your head? That's going to cost half your paycheck. You want to feed yourself? That's going to cost a quarter of your paycheck. Don't even don't even imagine getting sick, right? Like, like Kurt Vonnegut, like in one of his books back then, like there's that line that he has where he's talking about like he, he he's talking about Earth from this like outside vantage point. And he's doing this and, and he mentions like in an almost documentary per, uh, sort of point of view, he's like, yeah, in Earth, one of the most expensive things you could do is get sick way more expensive than any vacation you could ever possibly take. Right. And, and at the time, like, you know, you read that and you're younger and it's like, oh, that's kind of a funny. And then you grow up and you're like, it's absolutely fucking true. And it's so fucked up that we live in a society where like one of the absolute most expensive things you can do is get sick and fight for your life. Like, like he said, more than any vacation, more than any car. And it's really upsetting to sit there and watch these movies and know that just these are the type of people that are literally constructing the society that we live in and it's bullshit and it's upsetting 
rant over. Do you feel, do you feel better, buddy? <laughs> no, I don't. I'm pissed off. I want to punch some some some, some corporate bigwigs, man. Man, man. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, this has been talking through stuff with Jason and Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> talking through stuff show. Uh, yeah, I believe with uh, Jason and Ryan. <laughs> I've got some pamphlets out in the front. Uh, when you leave, go ahead and grab one. Folks, we are two and a half minutes into this movie, and uh, <laughs> Jason's already having an existential crisis um, about shoes and capitalism and a communist state, no less, which is really weird. He's mad about the capitalists in communist China. Dude, I Sweet. know, but I like, and also just so you know, I'm not one of these anti-capitalist people. Like, we all need jobs. Capitalism is a good thing for society. It's just, God forbid, <laughs> we should find a balance in anything, right? Everything has to be some giant extreme Talking one thing or the other, dude. <laughs> it's like it's like Man. either just like vicious, violent, abhorrent, abhorrent capitalism, or vicious, violent, abhorrent socialism, and those are our only two options. Like, let's so, meet halfway, people. Let's get a mediator in here. Let's meet halfway, <laughs> goddammit. Not sustainable. So, this is now, this is Jason having a meltdown. Um, <laughs> fuck, Jesus. Yeah, so, so we have that opening scene. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, we, we see the cards are stacked against old uh, Gondo and... Uh, <laughs> He's got to make some moves. He's making some big money moves. And, and we find out after a phone call that he's uh, got some backdoor deals going on with uh, some other shareholders. And he's looking to get majority stake by a long shot. And he has leveraged everything right down to the clothes on his back to, uh, to get the, the shares he needs to outvote uh, the board members who were just riding his ass a few moments ago saying he makes too expensive shit. He cut, kicked them out and then... Now we find out his secret plans to really buy the majority share from all the other shareholders. And he's going to run this shoe company by, by Jove. Damn it. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, then that, that's when the movie takes off. And it feels like, by the way, I think we're like 25 minutes into the movie with everything I just kind of summarized. Right there. <laughs> it was a long it's haul a long to get us to where we needed sure. to go. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things I did appreciate about the film, so it's a tale of two halves that we'll get into. The first half takes place pretty much entirely in the living room of uh, Kingo's apartment, flat, whatever it is. And so one of the things that I really appreciated about the film was the way that they presented it as though it was almost like a theatrical production, you know, with the staging Yeah, no, of the it actors. felt very theatrical. Yeah, yes. the way that they used lighting and there'd be certain shots. The way they shots. used music. Yeah, correct. Yeah, there'd be certain shots where, you know, like... Kingo would be in the background in sort of dark silhouette contemplating his situation. And then, you know, there's these actors in the foreground that are all lit, lit up and that's where the action's taking yep. place. And you can sort of scan back and forth. I love when I love when filmmakers do that, when they know what they're doing and it's someone as prolific as and talented as a Kurosawa. It's done really effectively. I, it, I it's, agree. It's just a style that's great to watch. I think it was the time to like just the, the nature of the you know, the film that he shot it on and it was black and white. There was a lot of things that just kind of made it feel otherworldly. And so that you could, you know, do a bit of a stage play thing with it. And it felt very stagey to me. And I loved it. I agree. Yeah, um, absolutely. You are in this room for a while though. So I hope you <laughs> like it because you're not going to get much else for a little bit. Uh, at one point I wrote down, this is like Chinatown with better drapery. Dude, those guys <laughs> drapes are on point. I love his drapes. 
<laughs> yeah, no, it's, they were. It was classy. By the way, I also one of the things that I noted is uh, so I. I mean, I haven't seen a lot of Japanese cinema. I'm not really familiar with like what a like a a traditional upper crust house would be, right? Like, but uh, the house that they were in reminded me a lot of the house from Parasite. Just the the whole outlay. Yeah. Yes. Oh wow. Nice one. Yeah. So and I, and again, I don't know if that's pretty common over there. Like that's just how houses are built, or if that's just a style that lends itself well to filmmaking. It's kind of like we were talking about a little moment ago, or before the break, with uh with Kubrick. Like when you watch Kubrick films, they always take place in these sort of like giant libraries and giant, you know, really uh, ritzy sort of apartments. You know, it's never in really like grandiose. a dingy. Yeah. Yeah. It's never a dingy roach you know, infested sort of you know sublet room it's always these really sort of nice like you you can tell he was a rich kid and and, and he was used to right. nice things for sure well even the final scenes of uh 2001 when the guy's sitting there writing in his uh, diary or yeah whatnot, totally and, uh we go through and see the fetus on the bed all glowing and stuff like that r- chamber room that he's in writing his last notes or what memoir or what have you uh is pretty over the top even that was cool yeah even though it was like not so simple look like an ikea you know stage floor so as you said, Ryan, he's leveraged uh, Kingo, that is. He's leveraged everything that he has to try to make a play for this majority control of the company. Immediately, he gets a call from what ends up being a kidnapper, and they demand a ransom for his son. Except that, lo and behold, it actually turns out that the kidnappers didn't kidnap his son. They actually kidnapped his son's friend, and they had just switched outfits, which is why the kidnappers thought that it was Kingo's son and not his I don't even think the guy's his friend, but the the boy is at least no, it's his, his driver. Friend. It's his driver. Yes, correct. Yeah, it's and his driver's son, and since his driver's all always around, then the you know the two kids got to know each other pretty well. Correct. So even though, and then even though he learns that it's not his son, he's still like, well, still gonna it's gonna hold, still gonna hold him for ransom. It's gonna make you look bad if you don't pay. So uh, that kind of sets up our central conflict that's gonna take up the majority of the first half of the film. And uh, yeah, it's a kidnapping movie. Correct. And, uh, you know, like Taken or something like that, but not quite as action-packed. So, um, yeah, th- this was, this, uh, oof. Th- around this point, the movie took a weird turn because uh, he was all, when it was his son, and then when it became his driver's son, and they found out that they kidnapped the wrong boy, um, the whole mood changed with the with King Ogondo. And so it, it was... At first, I was like, oh, it's not my son. Fuck that kid then. And it just seemed like a little abrupt the way that they, uh, the way he just turned out, you know. But he ended up uh, sticking up for the kid in the end and did the right thing. So whatever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, you know, at first, like you say, he's going to he's gonna think about it. He's not really sure what he's going to do. And I, I did like that, by the way. I, you know, I think that. Yeah. Kingo was turmoil. Yeah, and and I like the fact that they presented Kingo as sort of a more compassionate version of that strong-willed businessman that we see. So, like, Scorsese's Kingo, like, doesn't give a fuck, dude. He's like, fuck that kid. I've got things to do, right? He's played by De Niro, and De Niro doesn't care. But Kurosawa's Kingo is, you know, has has more compassion, and he really wrestles with the emotions, you know? He doesn't, he doesn't just say, screw the kid right away. Like, he really has to consider it. I think he ends up sleeping right. on it. And it's not until the next morning where he's like, you know what? Like, yeah, I'm sorry. I just can't do that. Like business is my blood and I just can't throw away my entire life. And I'm very sorry. And, uh, 
So, you know, just the fact that, again, he's not a callous man. You know, it does weigh on him. And I, I really liked that aspect of his character. So, yeah, I mean, just to kind of double back and explain a little bit more to that, too, is uh, in the beginning of the film, you know, he he's basically threatened by the, the uh, three council members, I guess you'd call them, or board members yeah. that were going to vote him out and kick him out uh, because of his shoes, like we had said. And uh, so the money, the, the ransom money that he has to collect at this point in the film now uh, was the, in the money that he had leveraged everything on to buy those shares. So Correct. now he can't buy the shares. He's going to be kicked out of the company uh, by the people after all because he wasn't able to buy a majority share. And he's leveraged to the gills uh, to get all this money in the first fucking place. So he's he understands that if he pays his ra- ransom and doesn't get it back in time, um, he's going to lose everything. And so therein lies the kind of inner struggle of that character for a portion of the film. Will he or won't he? And uh, it's... Interesting, I have in my notes here that he literally at this point in the film becomes the ticking clock uh, because mm. as you go through the film from this point on, after the ultimatum has been given to him, uh, he starts to digress and deteriorate uh, as he loses things to auction. Yeah. Uh, you see him lose his wealth slowly but surely. At one point, uh, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, they even um, make it a point that he's mowing his own lawn. He starts to lose his staff and have to take care of himself. Mm-hmm. And uh, you see the de-evolution of man <laughs> from wealth to poverty, and he's your ticking clock because you know when he's broke and destitute on the street, it's too late. So uh, we got to get this man his money back. Oh, and also the driver's kid too, but also the money. yeah no that's a really interesting perspective i actually uh didn't didn't consider that the other thing that i liked as well was that's when they introduce more or less the wife and again you know it's especially at the time you know japanese culture early 60s everything that goes along with that i I think that they made her you know more of a strong-willed character ultimately she does defer to her husband's wishes but She's not afraid to actually sort of get in his face and in not on any disrespectful way, but whereas everybody else sort of cowers in fear from him, she's like, hey, we need to do what's right. No, she right. steers him right. Yeah, we need to yeah. do what's right. We need to pay this money. This is what's up. Please do this, blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, That's I think that. And then, and then he doesn't just immediately <laughs> turn around and slap her. You know, he listens to her. So I really liked the way that they... Jesus, is that your go-to? He doesn't actually turn around and slap her? No, just, I mean, just playing with the archetype of that type of character. Again, like <laughs> like, like in Martin Scorsese's version, like Robert De Niro like smacks his wife and tells her to get out of here. There's man work to do, right? And this doesn't take that tone. Like this takes a much no, more... they're not Italian. Like mature and different tone and like just, you know, maybe right. it's just the cinema that I've seen. But again, like rarely... Do you see these powerful businessmen that are really treated with compassion and have solid relationships and they're not cheating on their wife with younger wow. mistresses uh, and yeah. all this crap, right? Like, yeah. Like, so those, no, those this guy's types straight of, and narrow. Yeah. So those types of things kind of stood out to me as I was watching this. And that's the only reason I bring it up is just that I felt that whether it was an archetype at the time or not, it's since become an archetype and it was refreshing to see a character play against that. The corrupt businessman is not corrupt. Crazy. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, <laughs> like it's a, it's got a lot less cynicism than a lot of, you know, all of our anti-corporation, which, which after, after my whole rant, I'm sitting here criticizing our anti-corporate perspective. But this is also <laughs> uh, this is also the time in the movie we get introduced to the cops, too. And uh, we yeah. who were with the rest of the film. Um, and my favorite is Boston. 
uh, the man they call Boston, and uh, man, they uh, they rib him the entire movie about how ugly he is. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That guy. Uh, I had a hard time with the names, would, dude. I, I couldn't. And they would always like high five each other, like sick burn, bro. <laughs> there was a lot of those. I don't know, man. Kurosawa had a funny sense of humor. I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So, like you say, we've uh, eventually. Well, you know, before that, I mean, we we've, we've got the whole payout scene, you know. So let's let's not lose sight of that because. Before that happens, you know, we've got the whole thing where the kidnapper calls in and, you know, he's, there's that scene where he's like, I can see you. And, you know, they end up closing the drapes and he's like, don't don't do anything funny. So there's that whole scene. And then uh, from there, they get another call and then eventually Kingo relents and he's like, you know what? I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to pay this ransom. And they end up striking a deal to meet with the kidnapper on the train with the boy, which is where the exchange is going to be made. And so, you know, the cops, everyone else go down there. And at the 11th hour, they get a note from, I believe it was someone random or maybe a conductor. I forget exactly who. And uh, or maybe it was another investigator. It says that the child is not on the train. And from there, they immediately get a call and it's the kidnapper. And he's instructing them to throw the money out of the bathroom window in the suitcase at a predetermined area. And they're just going to pick it up from there and release the kid. And uh, I thought that was a really right. Yeah, and I thought that was a really effectively shot scene. I love me some oh, tracking dude. shots, dude. Whether it was they're fantastic. handheld, yeah, man. Whether they're handheld, whether they're on tracks, whether you're Kubrick or whether you're Kurosawa, it was really cool. Anytime you have those tight corridors, even something like Das Boot, you know, like just any of those tight corridors right. with those tracking shots, it's it always works for me, dude. Always. No, I agree. I loved it, and uh, it, there was. Such a, it felt so frenetic compared to what they just shown us for what must have been 45 minutes, mm-hmm. uh, where we were in the house and it was a lot of back and forth. And by the end, it was kind of exhausting because it was fairly repetitive conversations with the kidnapper making new demands and trying to come to terms. And then all of a sudden, boom, you're in this train and you're about to make the exchange and you got the money in the bag and all this stuff. And, uh, and the way it was shot and the music choices and, and all the sound, the screeching of the train, the click clack of the train, all of that was stellar and uh, gave a really refreshing bump to this film exactly at the right moment that I felt it needed it. Because I was starting to kind of wane a little bit in the house. I, but towards the end, I was like, we got to get out of this house. It's all just here. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, we're in like the coolest scene, one of the coolest scenes of the movie. Yeah. Maybe there's something to the psychology of being in quarantine as well. You're like, look, I'm not watching a movie to sit in a goddamn living room for hours at a time. I can do that all day, every day. Take me to a, take me somewhere else. Anywhere else, please. How the fuck they make a movie about this? No, I agree. Yeah. So, uh, so, you know, and then I did like the line where, you know, before Toshiro or Kingo as it is, Drops the money out of the bathroom. He basically says that he's tra- he specifically says I'm trading my life for the boys, and he does it yep. anyway. And again, you know, much in the same way that in Paths of Glory, you know, Colonel Dax was given opportunities to be honorable in the face of you know challenging situations. We get that here with Kingo's character, and so again, like be be. There's just there's no way to not respect him for doing that, you know, so we get built in pathos right away. You know, there's nobody that's not on board with Kingo by this point because he did make that sacrifice. And regardless of what you think or business about business or not, you can still appreciate the sacrifice that he made and the degree to which he made it. 
Yeah, no doubt. Uh, to the point where he could even potentially lose his family and his wife. Uh, it was mentioned a couple times that she's never known poverty, and so she wouldn't know how to hang. And uh, I'm certain that that was weighing on him as well, because um, they had more than one conversation about it. Uh, then we go on a bit of a manhunt uh, yeah. after this all gets swapped out. And, uh, you know, the cops were on the train. They saw the whole thing. They got some footage of the people that collected the money and swapped the kid and so forth. And uh, from here on out, we're with the cops for most of the film. And the uh, main character or family that lost uh, the boy, all of that uh, kind of plays as a backdrop to this police drama all of a sudden, this procedural, you know, law and order SVU style police drama. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's going to be the rest of the film is we're basically going to be following along with a combination of the police as well as the kidnapper and then also the driver and his son because they're kind of they kind of end up being like the carrot to the the cop stick, right? Like right, yeah. They're they're kind of going through and and the son sort of admon or rather the father sort of admonishing the son because he feels really guilty about the fact that he had to have his boss like spend all that money to free his kid. And so he's like, we got to find it. You know, we got to find the place. You need to think harder. You need to be remembering these things. Like we basically, basically like we've got to figure this out and get this guy's money back because like, you know, we can't live with this, but really I can't live with this. Right. Cause the kid's too right. young to really understand the gravity of what's going on. So, um, so yeah, and he's going to kind of, like I said, lead the cops a little bit and lead us as an audience toward the kidnapper. And, well, uh, yeah, they get the kid back and, uh, he's the only one that knows where the fuck he was. Cause he saw correct. everything out the window. Now they, they find out that they, uh, did knock him out or drug him with ether. So they've got that clue, uh, you know, where to get ether from, uh, uh, in such a pure supply that would knock out somebody so quickly, I guess. Mm -hmm. So they, they had that little lead, but other than that, like the kid is pretty much the key to this whole thing because he knows where he was geographically speaking by looking for monuments and stuff. So we see him and his dad get in little adventures here and there trying to find out where he was because of his dad's guilt and, and remorse for the whole thing and how it went down. But uh, yeah, again, all that's kind of played out uh, even through all of this with the deterioration of uh, Gondo and um, this is around the time you see him mowing his own lawn, like I said. And, and uh, there always seems to be a clock ticking around, uh, too. I think it was pretty deliberate that he's our ticking clock. <laughs> <laughs> the broker he gets, the closer we are to the end of the film. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, like, yeah. And he's almost immediately forced out of the company after this whole thing goes down. Yeah. The borrowers refuse to loan him the money. Basically, like, that money was going to be used for collateral. And instead, they're like, oh, yeah, no, you need to pay us in full or else uh, we're going to take all your property. Of course, you know, he can't do that until they find him. You know, it's going to be the case that uh, even though ultimately they will find him and get his money back, it's going to be too late. A lot of his stuff is already auctioned off. So, you know, we, we are seeing the consequences of his sacrifice, you know, and it is kind of nice. It's a little bit of a, a dichotomy of an ending just from the standpoint of the fact that he does get his money back, but he still kind of loses his possession and and the company, but then he's also working for like a new shoe company. But, um, but yeah, to, to, to get back to what you were saying about where the dad and his son were kind of going on, I thought that was a chance for just Kurosawa to get just some really beautiful photography. in. I don't know if you felt the same way, but there was just some shots of like some just really nice exterior landscapes of the ocean and Mount Fiji. And to your point, you know, from being, 
trapped in that house the whole time for an hour plus. It was really nice to get out and see some of these really lush environments. Yeah, he took you for a walk, took you for a little stroll, midday <laughs> stroll on a Wednesday. It felt nice. Get some yeah. cold, cold. We've been sitting there scratching away. at the window panes for so long, and it was just getting all foggy <laughs> from our breath. And finally, he just opened that door, and we just ran out so excited. <laughs> our little tails shaking. Just let's go for a walk. Let's go for a walk with Kurosawa. <laughs> Going for walks. Um, yeah, so then they go to the, uh, the kidnapper's house. They follow these clues all around town where they could have been calling from, listening for stuff in the background, things he had mentioned about being hot and, oh, you're up on the hill, which means he's down in the valley and so forth. Uh, and he can see in the drapes the whole time, those damn drapes, man. I wanted those drapes. Uh, <laughs> they, they could see in the drapes and see in the dude's house the whole time. So he, they know what they're up to with the cops and shit at this point, I think. And uh, yeah, we go in the uh, kidnapper's house. We follow uh, uh, Gondo's driver and his son. Uh, up on the hill and we get to the actual place he was being held uh, for. And we find that the kidnappers are dead inside. Yeah. So it's basically revealed that the killers were the kidnappers rather were heroin addicts. And as the cops test the heroin, they find that it's 90% pure, which is like way more than, than street. And so they believe that it was a murder where it was an intentional overdose using some like too powerful heroin and because of everything involving the bigwigs at the corporation, they're the first suspects that come up on the cops' radar. And so they're going to come up with a plan to try to trick the kidnapper, whoever it was, and they're not going to publish the details of the death. And they're also going to indicate that some of the money was stolen to buy drugs with because that was a threat that the actual kidnappers had made to the guy who was funding the operation. From there, we go back to the kidnapper, and he's reading this article about Kingo, and Kingo's getting good press right now because everybody appreciates his sacrifice, despite what's happening to him. And subsequently, National Shoe Company is being boycotted, and that's when he fails to see the details of the kidnapper's death, and all of this combines to where he takes the bait, and he believes that the kidnappers are still alive, he being the guy, the ultimate kidnapper who's bankrolling the situation. And so, and I think he might have also like gotten some sort of note or something like that. I don't recall. Like I said, there was a lot to unpack in this movie. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so either way, he believes that the kidnappers are not dead. And so he needs to go try to basically do this whole thing again, right? He needs to get some more really pure heroin so that he can like stage this accidental overdose when really it's just a murder. So we're going right. to follow him. Get rid of the uh, get rid of the evidence. Yeah, so we're going to follow him uh, alongside the cops as he tr- kind of goes through the, his little operation of his own for the remainder of the film. Now, Ryan, I do want to ask you about something. So it's right about now where Kingo's offered this sort of like lame duck position at National Shoe because they want like better press from the boycott. He rightly tells them to go fuck themselves. He couldn't give a shit less. And then all of a sudden there's this like sort of random shot. And it's of like a factory where there's just like, you know, it's an exterior wide shot. Smoke's belching from the chimney, whatever. It's just the smoke is colored pink. Did you catch that? Yeah. No, that was the pink smoke from the suitcase, the briefcase that they stitched in the uh, little pill earlier in the film. 
Wait, so 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 explain it, man. I totally missed that. Back, back up this truck a little bit and tell me what's going on. So when they when they had the two briefcases that they were going to put the money in, do you remember that the police said we have two these two things, one of which if it gets wet, it'll stink really bad, and the other if it uh, gets burned, it'll put out pink smoke. And so hopefully one of the two of these things will happen because the uh, kidnappers going to have to ditch the evidence, i.e. these briefcases, because the briefcases were uh, ugly as sin and they would stand out in a crowd or whatever. He's, he's not going to keep them. So he's going to try to get rid of them somehow. Chances are burn them or drown them. So the pink smoke was, do you remember when Gondo was sitting on the floor and he's like, no, no, let me do it. When, back in the day when people made shoes, they made uh, suitcases too. And uh, so I know all about the stitching and he ripped out the stitching and put the pills where they needed to go. So they would have the appropriate effect uh, if they're ever given the chance to catch this guy. Wow. Do you not remember that? I do not remember any of this at all whatsoever. And I feel like, dude, like I have a very substantial like summary that I wrote up for this film. It's the longest one by far for any film we've done yet. And still there, there's things that I missed, man. This is like, I mean, like we said at the top show, this is just a film with so much to unpack. But no, I completely missed that, dude. <laughs> yeah, that was a whole thing that happened. And so the pink smoke was the uh, briefcases burning. Um, they're like, oh, there it is. Gotcha, bitch. And they went down to the incinerator. And that's when they had the conversation with the, uh, you know, the grimy old man in the incinerator. And they're like, what'd you burn today? Boston was down there and he was, uh, you know, getting the business from this guy. He's like, well, there was one guy. And then he's like, oh, OK, tell me about this one guy. He's like, oh, I'm going to tell you everything about this one guy. And it's like, whoa. You knew all that? Like, he's a doctor. He works at such and such medical. He's an intern. He's been there for two and a half years. He has easy access to everything you're looking for. Like, I was like, oh, wow, okay. (laughs) (laughs) That guy had all the intel. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's, you know, and it's shortly after that that we actually start sort of winding down. And the cops actually do catch the kidnapper, but they don't want to arrest him just yet. And uh, right. they actually notice his, <laughs> I guess it's a signature wristband. We're bringing it up for the first time in the entire damn program. Probably should have mentioned that earlier, but he's got this wristband that he wears. And so uh, they they happen to see it and, you know, they confirm that it's him. But like I said, if, uh, I think it's, I think they only get 15 years for kidnapping over there. And so they basically want to right. put him away for life. So they want to wait and kind of trail him and catch him doing some more shit so they can put him away for life. They got to link him to the murders of the drug dealers. And so they faked it as if they were still alive and he failed and wasn't able to kill them um, by taking a note uh, that they had written and resubmitting it to him, like refilling the note back in and uh, submitting it to him saying, basically, give me more drugs or we're going to talk. And uh, and the jig is up. And so he's now got to go re-kill these two people, so he thinks. But what he's really doing is you know, going right into the cop's trap because once he, they get him at the scene of the crime of these murders with the heroin to overdose them again, uh, he, they can directly link him to the kidnapping and everything else and, uh, including the murders and he would go away for life if not be killed. So cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and then, you know, there's that, that scene. I, I thought this was a great scene where they, they trail him to that bazaar, and uh oh where, yeah yeah that, that was that was that was a great scene a lot of really cool dude how sick there. were those glasses yes His fucking glasses so hip were dude. so reflective so hip 
Yeah, no. It, I, I kept I, looking into his glasses. I watched this on a giant screen. I kept looking into his glasses to try to find the film crew, and uh, I did not. <laughs> so I don't know how Kurosawa did that. They almost look like graphics are overlaid or something. Like it's almost fake. It's so clear, totally uh, and reflective and shiny. On that, you know note, what it reminded me of? Was, I think uh, I do. What are you going to say? Elijah Wood's character in Sin City? Absolutely, one hundred percent, buddy. One hundred percent. Yes. I was going to say it if awesome. you didn't, dude. This is this yeah, is why we're friends, bro. It looked bro. to be a big impact. Because I, I know that that's all, you know, based on the Sin City graphic novels and Dame to Kill For and all that. But, uh, man, um, yeah, I'll be damned if I don't think that Rodriguez saw this film and thought that was a cool ass effect like I did. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Well, and that's kind of the cool thing about like art is that it exists and persists beyond generations. Like you can't for sure tell me that Frank Miller wasn't influenced by these visuals and put them into Sin oh, City. Of who would later right. be picked up by Robert Rodriguez, you know, like these things sort of get yeah. passed down like stories go down the to generations. Work. Yeah. Yeah. It's really cool to see, yeah. man. That's one of the things that I always really appreciate is just sort of, you know, watching how various shots persist and the way that different cinematic techniques will, you know, ebb and flow over the course of time. You know, you're always going to have transitions and cuts and close-ups and things of that nature, right? But like dolly ins and dolly outs and zooms. You know, I think I mentioned before how like you know every time I watch a '70s film, it's just like, oh, they clearly just invented the zoom lens because everyone loves some freaking zooming, especially <laughs> if the film takes place in New York, man. Like, I don't know, they were probably just like, sweet dude, we can just film the whole thing from my apartment. We'll just stick it out there and just, <laughs> just zoom in on everyone and we'll be able to see them. It's great. And um, print and wrap. Yeah. Um, <laughs> did you know, Jason, that in this same scene where they're tracking the guy down to go buy drugs for the new overdose, that the trap that they've set, uh, he goes to a little swanky discotheque and uh, to go buy these drugs after a brief stop off at the docks for some reason that wasn't really explained. <laughs> and... Um, so the dance that they do, because he puts a, gets a red carnation, puts it in his pocket to signify that he wants drugs, I guess, or that, you know, he's him. Mm-hmm. And uh, this woman spots him. They start dancing and uh, to do before they do the drug exchange. Yes. And uh, that dance is the exact same dance, I guess, that Uma Thurman and John Travolta did in Pulp Fiction. Oh, no way. Yeah. That was wow. all, I guess, what inspired him for that whole scene. So, um, <laughs> yeah. Why, why is it the more you learn about Tarantino, the more you learn just exactly who he stole each film and part and storyline from? Deal with both hands. Yeah. So he's among my favorite filmmakers of all time, if not like, you know, like at the top. But yeah, dude, I mean, he's a if you want to be polite about it, I guess you can say he is a very influenced director. OK, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so after yeah. this, he, the uh, our, our uh, cops and our kidnapper go to a heroin den because he's got to try these drugs he's got the drugs now he wants to test him out on a junkie to see if it could put it is it strong enough to kill a bear like let's do this thing. yeah and so uh he goes into this heroin den and this is where we're introduced to heroin zombies which yeah were fucking bananas this whole I scene was it. crazy <laughs> i love this so much fucking, they're like braids braids <laughs> clawing at him like zombies yeah well and this floor. place is called dope valley and it's yeah. shot just like a horror film. It's incredibly dark, incredibly stark, feels really dank and depressing. All of the people kind of have that rotted, sunken look because they're all addicts and they move slow like zombies. 
And yeah, the metaphor there was just perfectly done. I loved it. And yeah, so he ends up finding a heroin addicted woman and he uses her to test the the drugs on to make sure that they're pure enough. And it turns out, hey, guess what? They are. Uh, she dies almost instantly. And after that, you know, the cops have seen all of this. So they've seen him, even though they kind of missed him buying the drugs, I think. Um, they were a, they did see him, uh, murdering this woman with the drugs. So they're basically waiting for him outside of his house. You know, he's like just getting ready to go ahead and, oh, going to go take care of these heroin addicted kidnappers that are fucking with my shit. And, uh, (laughs) and then, uh, the cops come out, you know, pop out the trees. Hey, we got you, buddy. And, uh, they pretty quickly recover most of his money actually, and deliver it yeah, back to it's Kingo. All there. Except for a few thousand for the, that he spent on drugs. <laughs> Trying <laughs> to kill those people. It's all there yeah. accounted for. Unfortunately, it's a little bit too late as most of his possessions and his house and everything has already been auctioned off. But at least yep. there's some sort of silver lining there. He does get his money back. And, uh, you know, by the, by the time it ends, he's also got a new job with a new shoe factory. And he's not making nearly the money that he was, but he's given a lot of freedom and autonomy and he's kind of happy with that. So it's funny because right around this time, the cops go to his house and they're asking him, you know, hey, we got all your money. Good news. Blah, blah, blah. Was it in time? And then he's like, sit down, sit down. And we kind of do a pan around the room and we see all these things have stickers uh, going to the auction, going to the auction, you know, reserved for auction. And uh, even the chairs they're sitting on. So everything's being sold. He's fucked. Even though he's got his money back, I guess it was too late and he already lost his position. So he's going to have to rebuild. Uh, and then we do a pan around the room. And I swear to God, they do a zoom in on an actual fucking ticking clock. And the ticking clock <laughs> dongs. And like the alarm goes off, or it's on the hour type of thing. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? We have an actual <laughs> ticking clock alarm going off. It is too late. Dong, dong. Like, oh, there we go. That's funny. <laughs> well, you know, maybe maybe these were like the winks and nods of their time, right? Like in the early yeah, 60s, yeah. it was like, oh, that's cute, Akira. We like what you did there. <laughs> so then we get uh, to the to the very end where we find out the kidnapper will only speak to our man Gondo mm-hmm. and uh, to give the rundown of why he did this. And it's maybe one of the more unsatisfying conclusions <laughs> I've seen in a film. Kurosawa was already done. He's like, wrap it up. Let's yeah. go home, everybody. I don't care. Just say you did it because your mom beat you or something. You had a yeah. bad childhood. That's the deal. Right? Going home. He's like, I never expected us to be here this long to begin with. Everybody go home to your wives and girlfriends. <laughs> how, wait, how long is this movie? Two and a half hours? Oh, fuck. We got to wrap this up. He's like, yeah, I'm 20 <laughs> minutes over my studio mandate. Uh, we got to go. <laughs> yeah. Wind this down. Yeah. I was a little wordy, apparently. And it is funny because, uh, you know, he, like I said, you know, King Ogando, he, he expresses that he doesn't really mind working for this new company. And, you know, the kidnapper puts up that whole, like, I don't care, I'm not scared, you know, tough guy facade. But, of course, he ends up breaking <laughs> down quickly because that's how that always goes, right? And then, uh, yeah, and then instead of any sort of, uh, you know, epilogue or even just a, a visual indicator that the movie's over, you know, just like a slow sort of pan out or, or zoom out or, you know, something, uh, we just we just dissolved the black. Movie over. Finished. Done. Let's get they out of here. They roll down the peep show garage door. There's like a peep show, like an old time square peep show garage door looking thing that like rolled up to reveal, uh, reveal our kidnapper prisoner. And then it rolled back down and then fade to black, like you said. And that was that. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess like it was kind of one of those things like, oh, oh, you're done, Akira. Yep, yep. Nothing left to nothing left to say. Sure, you want to give a little yeah. uh, a little, little wrap it up speech? Nope, nope. I'm good. So I'll go home. <laughs> good, good. Got, We're good. Said what I want to say. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, you know, and maybe maybe that was just something about you know they, we never know if that's is that a visual language of the time? Is it a visual language of the geography? Is it specific to this artist? Is there maybe some other sort of Easter egg fact behind why he did that or he just didn't care? You know, I mean, obviously he knows what he's doing as a filmmaker, but uh, yeah. I mean, I, mean, I was done, entertained man. all the way through. I really enjoyed this movie. I look Same. back on it. I would watch it again. Um, you know, it just didn't have that, you know, Hitchcockian wrap up that you maybe were expecting based yeah. on how far you would come into the film and all the places you had gone. But I guess it was more about the journey, not the destination in this one. So high and low, 1963. <laughs> Kurosawa, you got me. I liked it. Great film. Loved it. I right? did. I will say this. They So on the killer, uh, or the kidnapper, excuse me. Well, I guess he was a killer too. Uh, he had that hand wrap, right? And and uh, we find out later in the film when he, we see him without the hand wrap, he's got a really deep gash in his hand. And mm. I just thought, um, and that's what he was covering up to identify himself with the hand wrap. Mm. And as he was doing all these criminal activities. And I just kept thinking like, what if his whole motive was out of uh, revenge to Gondo because he got hurt because his shoes were too sturdy and the woman was like <laughs> stepping on his hand or something. He's like, your shoes, they were too dependable. <laughs> and he shows his hand and it's all cut. <laughs> and gashed in. I was really hoping for a wrap up like that. I that that would have been great. Seen. Yeah, no, it, it was not. It had had absolutely nothing to do with the fact that he grew up in squalor, literally watching this shining house on a hill for his entire existence and yeah. everything that that represented. It, it kind of did have a parasite vibe to it, man. I'm glad yeah, you brought totally. that up because I, I didn't notice that until you mentioned it. So yeah, yeah, exactly. That's kind of the same thing. That yeah, and so. uh, but no, but no. It actually, as we would later learn, it had nothing to do with that, and had everything to do with that bitch of a woman who stepped on his hand, with that exceptionally yeah. made Kingo shoe. <laughs> Those Kingos, <laughs> they'll get you, man. Don't get stepped on by the Kingos. Um, <laughs> that's about all I got, man. It was a fun film, um, and I can't wait to watch more Kurosawa films. And I'm really sorry to everybody for not having seen more. Yes, shame, I'll remedy it shame. soon. I'll get back on it. I know, I know, I know. I'll get on it. <laughs> so as we uh, do, Ryan, why don't you hit us up with your three adjectives for high and low? Oof. Um, this movie was a noir, and I, I didn't... Um, man, this is another one of those I didn't really know what I was walking into. I didn't read in the summary that it was a detective drama and this and that, but uh, this was a good old-fashioned bogey and Bacall-style noir, and I really appreciated it. Um this also, I was trying to figure out a way to say it, and you said it better. Uh, I was I was trying to think of like not divisive. That's not the word, but you said it was a tale of two halves. That's a great way to put it because uh, it definitely does have segments, and um, yeah, I, I it was so different. Like it was almost jarring the beginning, middle, and end of this film. But uh, they felt yeah. like three you know isolated chapters, um, and uh, gritty. I mean. Very much like, uh, that's something I'm going to talk about here in our comparisons, but uh, very much like um, Paz of Glory, this was a gritty film. Um, I looked on what other films were coming out around this era to see if this was a trend or not. Um, And uh, 
yeah, I, I just thought it was really interesting that, you know, I got to watch because, you know, some of these classic films you go into not really knowing if they're going to be good or not or, or have a really slow pace or, or uh, I mean, we kind of dealt with that with Wild Strawberries. And so, yeah. but Kurosawa won me over, man. I really appreciated this film. Awesome. Awesome. Cool. Well, uh, I'm glad that uh, you you had the same adjective for two different films in the same program. That was That's cool. Gritty, gritty. <laughs> <laughs> Giving you shit, buddy. Uh, okay, so for my three adjectives, my first one I've got is methodical. You know, this is a film that wasn't afraid to take its time. It, it set its pieces very distinctly, very slowly, very deliberately, and everything really took a while to pay off. Carrying over from that, we have that this is a slow burn of a film. You know, this isn't a film that you're going to want to come to if you're looking for a lot of hyperkinetic editing and fast camera movements and e- even the uh, even the acting style. I mean, we didn't really talk about, but like Mufune was great in this movie. I don't think we talked oh, about absolutely. Like, I absolutely loved his performance. And it's one of those things where obviously I can I can watch the subtitles, but it's like I don't specifically know the words that are coming out of his mouth. But it almost makes it more impressive because I can feel the emotion with like when he's bringing that fire or when he's, you know, really wrestling with the weight of the situation. It really comes through. And so even with that language barrier there, still just a wonderful, wonderful performance. And and the thing that you'll like, Ryan, is Toshiro Mifune is Akira Kurosawa's guy. Okay, like every every movie he does stars that guy. So you're going to get to see a lot of him. I did know that. Yeah. And that's going to be on my comparison list as well is, uh, you know, the relationships these directors had with their actors. Interesting. Cool. Yeah. So and then uh, my last adjective is dense AF. As we discussed over the course (laughs) of this film or this podcast, rather, this is just a film with so much going on and so many layers. And I, I, I doubt very much that anybody who watches it once is going to be able to pick up on everything. I mean, both of us had things that, you know, we missed and especially me with that whole smoke and the suitcase thing. Like I, I don't even know what the hell happened there. Um, so yeah, this is a movie with like a lot going on. There's a lot to unpack. There's a lot to watch and, and, and take note of. And so methodical, slow burn, dense AF, now it's time for that star and grade rating. Ryan, hit us up with your grade rating for high and low. Uh, I gave this one a B plus. Okay. Um, I, I mean, I was entertained all the way through. Uh, I have nothing bad to say about this film. Um, I think that uh, now that I'm on to, you know, the, the trail here for Kurosawa films, uh, I think I'm going to see better. So you mm. can't just come right out and say, oh, that's his A, a movie, you know. I'm going to go yeah. say, say B plus. Okay. It was very, dude, for a two and a half hour film, I never felt bored. I was never looking at my phone. Um, it had a great pace. Like you said, the acting was stellar. And the three parts felt very different. Uh, mm. So it felt kind of like I was, just as I was sick of one thing, it you know dragged me along to another, a whole other you know action beats and, and uh, the pacing of the film and everything. So it was refreshing. Yeah, absolutely. Good instincts as a filmmaker on him. Yeah, uh, I actually had this one. I'm going to go ahead and smack it with the same rating as Paths of Glory and also give it four and a half stars. Uh, just a wonderful okay. film. Really enjoyed wow. it. Wow. Yeah, no, it's and, – and look, dude, uh, I mean, I gave you shit. I haven't 
Kurosawa has dozens of films. You know, I've maybe seen, I don't know, five or six, right? So I still have a ton of Kurosawa that I need to see. Huge gaps in his career. Kind of the same way like with, you know, Herzog or any of these prolific filmmakers that just have, you know, multi multiple dozens of films. You, you just, there's no way you're going to be able to, to go through everything. And then also still entertain you know, genre films and indie films. I mean, there's just, there's so much content out there. So I really appreciate, you know, much as you do that with this program gives us a chance to check out some of these films that again, you know, we yeah, wouldn't have definitely. made a priority to watch otherwise. Like, like even if you had Absolutely. decided to check out Kurosawa, there's no way you're going to check this out before you do Rashomon and before you do Seven Samurai and possibly Jimbo and some of these other movies, you know? Yeah, you know, it's funny you brought up Scorsese because I did read online somewhere that uh, there's a rumor that he was attached to remake this film at one point. It got stuck in development hell. So that would have been interesting to actually get a Scorsese version of this film at some point to remake. So Yeah, I mean, you we'll know, it's kind goes. of funny because uh, so <laughs> you have a Japanese filmmaker adapting a Western novel and then a Western filmmaker who often adapts those same Western novels, adapting the Eastern filmmaker's film from the Western novel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little. I love that. Yeah, so uh, anyways, both of us really enjoyed both of these movies, but certainly high and low. And uh, we got a quick fake commercial break coming up. Stick around. We'll see you afterward. Attention, ladies. Are you tired of those same old shoes that just last and last without fail? I wish these ugly things would break already so I could get new ones. Well, we've got fantastic news. In a striking and bizarre partnership, the National Shoe Company of Japan and the paramilitary division of the French Army have joined forces to inexplicably bring you the next great line of affordable shoe, Crappé. Love those Crappé shoes. You'll never again have to worry about your shoes overstaying their welcome, as the Crappé line is designed to wear out in just six months or less. Keeping your pocketbook light while providing fresh chum to the capitalistic overlords of the industrial shoe complex with their boots on the neck of the common man. Love those Crappé shoes. With Crappé, expensive leather insoles are a thing of the past. Imagine how much money you'll save walking on pure, unrefined, economy-grade particle board. It feels like I'm walking on... Particle board? This is... This is not pleasant. But you look fantastic. The balls of my feet are actively bleeding. Lady, the only thing you're bleeding is savings. Love those crappy shoes. And to take full advantage of significant economies of scale, Crappé is made available in just three colors. Black, for ladies of taste. White, for ladies of modesty. And red, for the communist scum that threatens to dilute the hardworking nature of free market enterprise. As a red-blooded woman, I love the opportunity to save my hard-earned money, while also working to abolish the ill-directed ideological onslaught of the Marxist proletariat. Love those Crappé shoes. So buy yourself a pair of Crappé shoes today. Crappé shoes, because what are you, a socialist? All right, Ryan, so this was a great week for films. Two heavyweights, Kubrick, Kurosawa, two great films. Let's go ahead and Loved before them. we get on to next 
episodes films. Let's do our quick comparison feature. So what were some okay. things that uh, stuck out to you in terms of the nature of these two films and how they compare to one another? Um, I thought that they one ramped up or one ramped down. So, you know, with Paths of Glory, you start in the trenches of World War One. You have a little bit of a pickup with the uh, meetings of the generals. Uh, and then it quickly escalates and you're on the front lines and you're storming the anthill and all this shit. And then from there on out, it just kind of is a slow burn, uh, you know, to the uh, shooting range where they end up meeting their ultimate fate. And then you end up, you know, really kind of somber in the bar and all of that. And I feel like High and Low did the exact opposite where you start in the house and it's like business dealings about shoes, exactly what you were saying. Like, am I going to be in for this? And then by the <laughs> end, you're all in for this. And it's Elijah Wood sunglasses, baby. Like it's all in and uh, it, it's intense and there's heroin zombies. And so, you know, it was just a really contrasty pace. Um, like I was saying earlier, they both do kind of have a a dirty tone. I felt like they played with a lot of textures in this film, mm-hmm. uh, both these films, to really get the set and setting down. Um, I know you called me out on using gritty for both films, but it really <laughs> did feel that way. That uh, both these films kind of took you in the muck and mire um, in high and low, as when, you know, in the ghettos when they're chasing the kidnapper. They even uh, you know went into detail about. Um, the fish guts that were sprayed on the car after they found the confiscated car and like how they could track that back to the fisheries and so forth. And so I just thought that, you know, they did a pretty cool job in a similar way that like, you know, noir classics like Chinatown or even the big sleep or some of these things uh, had done kind of putting you into it and taking you out of some of the glitz and glam and, and throwing you in the mud. Um, I, I also thought I mentioned this earlier, very briefly, the uh, relationships, these directors, must have had with the actors. Uh, as you said in Paths of Glory, Kirk Douglas actually championed that film quite a bit and got them to retain the original ending and uh, and stood up for him and, and ended up being in Spartacus, the follow-up to this film by Kubrick, if I'm not mistaken. So, um, you know, and then also Mithune and, and Kurosawa, like you said also, you know, they were in several films together. Um, you know, it just kind of, this was later in, in Kurosawa's career. This is after a lot of his you know, greatest hits that you could think of right off the top of your head. Uh, we're going, I think, past uh, Seven Samurai was, I want to say, 57, yeah, sure. 56, something like that. Mm-hmm. So you know, we're six years past that. He's been working with Mithune pretty much constantly, uh, from what I understand, cranking out tons of films. So uh, yeah, I thought that was an interesting take, too, just the acting, which, again, is something we didn't maybe speak quite enough of because I thought both these films were very well acted. Yeah, you can tell that we both like approach cinema from a filmmaking perspective because we always end up talking about like directorial choices and writing decisions and story arcs. And we really probably should lend a little bit more attention to some of the performances because some of them are really good in these films, you know, whether it's Klaus Kinski and Aguirre, whether it's Toshiro Mifune yeah, and no doubt. Low, whether it's Kirk Douglas in Paths of Glory. But, uh, you know, neither of us are actors, so I think... Uh, you tend to focus on some of these other elements a little more. <laughs> yeah. No, this was a very well-acted... Uh, both these were very well-acted films, and uh, like I said, it was neat to see. I think uh, um, Kurosawa's worked with several of those actors uh, over and over again. I think that was just kind of... A few of those actors were his homies. Yeah, totally, totally. So for my comparison, <laughs> uh, I think that these are two films that were both very classically made, and that they're two films that are both made richer for those classical filmmaking styles. So again, usually when we get a war movie, 
you know, it's going to be a lot of bombast. It's going to be a lot of, you know, patriotism. You're going to get, you know, action scenes in the trenches, things like that. And Kubrick's version just took a much more dialogue driven, you know, it's almost like the, the war equivalent of like a, almost like a romantic comedy, just from the standpoint of like the whole movie is pretty much just characters talking about stuff in rooms and exterior environments, right? It's not really about uh, the the action or the violence or anything like that, you know? And then the same thing with the high and low film, it was refreshing to see, because it was ultimately basically a police procedural is what high and low was, but it was done in a unique way because it was done from somebody who doesn't come from that traditional school of visual language and so he presented it to us in a completely different manner much more classical filmmaking styles wide shots long takes not a lot of fast edits not a lot of movement you know kind of the way when you watch those old films from the 40s and 50s and they have those really drawn out takes carried over from theater because film was so new at the time so i enjoyed yeah. yeah so i enjoyed that about those films and then uh the other thing is that both films dealt with violence however they dealt less with the act of violence and more about the emotional reaction to that violence and we saw that in different ways yeah so you know again doubling back to paths of glory most films would be all about those battlefield shots and you know tom berenger throwing up his arms as he gets shot in slow motion (laughs) and the swelling music and you're supposed to cry but you just want to get the hell out of the theater because oliver stone you're an overwrought hack sometimes Oh, man, this guy's coming out swinging. (laughs) But Kubrick's got confidence and, you know, he's not uh, just on two pounds of blow at any given time. So he can actually make a mature film. And uh, he did so here. And (laughs) and so uh, you don't know how much blow Kubrick did. Don't you make those comparisons? (laughs) He just doesn't seem like that kind of guy, man. You know, I don't think anybody who makes 2001 is just like busting rails left and right. Can't see that happening. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe. (laughs) Uh, But again, so, you know, Paths of Glory was less about the violence itself, and it was more about the the emotional reaction to that from the leaders that are trying to deflect and avoid any criticism for their decision-making to Dax responding to that and feeling, you know, like he needs to defend these men and he's the only one on their corner. And then even the last shot that we talked about, you know, with the uh, soldiers, with the girl, you know, a very emotional scene there. And that sort of allowing that emotion to uh, come out in response to war. You know, that, that's, that's ultimately what that, what that scene was about. And so, uh, yeah, and then, when, and then in High and Low, we see, uh, we see how tortured Kingo is for most of the film, as well as his uh, chauffeur, you know, and, and the way that even after they get the kid back, the way that the chauffeur responds, everybody's just sort of in this constant state of turmoil and... Uh, I thought that it was a really interesting take for both films to take uh, on their respective genres. All right. Yeah. I like all that stuff, man. That's all good shit. Yeah. Yeah. So this was a great week, dude. I was really excited about this week coming into it, and uh, it really just matched all of my hopes. And uh, I mean, again, dude, when you get Kurosawa and Kubrick in the same program, that's a hell of a program. These are two heavy hitters. And I was... I did wonder a little bit on the, because sometimes you hear about filmmakers inspiring one another and everybody's kind of watching each other's shit. Whoever's at the top of the heap is like seeing what everybody else is doing and, and certain people are, are influenced by others or at least respect their work. And uh, it really did 
make me wonder what these two directors thought about each other's films and uh, and what they would have said, you know. Yeah. How they would have reviewed. Yeah, that's interesting. I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised. We like, should was look Kurosawa into a fan of Kubrick or vice versa? You know what I mean? Like, uh, were some of these guys, you know, kind of in a fraternity of sorts? You know, like your uh, Spielbergs and Lucases and, and and Scorseses and and all of that. So I don't yeah, know. Yeah, that'd be, be interesting to find out. That'd be really interesting to know. And I know both of them. You know, they I could very easily see them being the type of people that respect each other's work, even if they don't necessarily like you know hang out and grab a beer after the sh- the shoot or anything like that. But um. They, you know, they both seem like really private people. They have their sort of go-to, you know, people that they work with. They tend to work in small crews for longer periods of time. I'm sure they appreciate and respect one another's process, but we should look into Even that. Even like uh, one thing that really made this stand out uh, to me was watching Paz of Glory and wondering, you know, man, this Kubrick must have really been inspired by, you know, David Lean. But they, uh, then it occurred to me this was at the exact same time that Lean was making Bridge on the River Kwai, and then he hadn't even gotten to make uh, Lawrence of Arabia yet. So oh, wow. um, maybe Lean was inspired by Kubrick in a lot of ways. And I was like, man, I wonder if these cats all knew each other. <laughs> or yeah. Ever hung out at award shows for drinks afterwards or something, you know? I don't know. <laughs> or maybe there was someone else that we were that we were and are unaware of that they were looking to, you know, and they happened to be looking yeah. to the same people either at that time or growing up. And so they had those same influences right. and there's just some crossover. I got to do some research on this and get back to you. I'm very curious. <laughs> All right, man. Well, uh, we are at one of my favorite parts of the program and that's where we get to do our lottery drawing for our next two films. I'm really looking Bring forward it. to it. And, uh, for anyone listening right now, our, uh, Master list here is sitting at a nice svelte 153. So we go to our random.org true random number generator and we are going to select our next two films. Ryan, film number one. The number we have is 107. Oh man, I think that you are going to be really, really pleased about this one. It's one you and I have talked about wanting to see for a while. I think we even okay. mentioned it on the program. We'll oh. be watching Sweet Sweet Beck's Badass Song. Oh, no way. Okay. Yes. Uh, was this Mario Van Peebles back mm-hmm. in the day? A little black exploitation film made for yep. nothing. <laughs> <laughs> you actually introduced me to this film. I had never heard of it, and you were like kind of the one of the ones because um, you were like a little bit more familiar yeah, with the whole exploitation and black exploitation in the seventies, and I hadn't really been into that. Yeah. You know? So um, I think so this yeah. is like the black exploitation film. It's yeah, the OG yeah, of right. All of it. So crazy. Uh, I'm just uh, showing the view from from the ghettos, showing film, you know, from the ghettos' point of view. I think it'll be really interesting. So what else we got? All right, dude. So for film number two, we go here. We're gonna generate. We're gonna go up to number sixty. Oh wow, dude. Uh, this is an interesting one. 2002's Hero out of China. Are you familiar with that one? Okay. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So that's. Dude, I've uh, seen that movie a bazillion times. Have you really? Yeah. If we're talking about the same hero. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The with the uh, with the uh, what's the uh, what's the what's the dude's name? Uh. uh I'm so bad with names. <laughs> uh, I always want to say Chun Li, and that just sounds insensitive. It's not Jet Li, is it? It is Jet Li. I knew I I was okay. close. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, 2002, uh, Jet Li, nameless protagonist, Chinese film. 
I think Chris Doyle shot this. Did My he? man, Chris Doyle. Yeah. Awesome. I mean, this was uh, pretty revolutionary when this movie came out because the, the slow motion and the, and the bright, vibrant colors and all of that. I know a lot of this has existed in Asian cinema for quite a while, but man, Chris Doyle, this Aussie guy, moves over and starts working with people like Wong Kar Wai and stuff like that, and it's he just goes bananas. And I think he, uh, if I'm not mistaken, he shot Hero. Now I have to look it up because I'm going to look like an asshole if I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> How long has it been since you've seen it, dude? Uh, uh, it's been a few years. Nice. Cool. Yeah, well, I've never seen this one. Uh, obviously, I put this one on the list. So uh, we got one of yours and one of mine That's this really week, which is always nice. you've never seen this. Yeah, no, I know. Like I said, we all have gaps in our in our film knowledge, dude. Like, it's just, it's, it's impossible. You haven't seen Kurosawa. I haven't seen Hero. You know, and there's two people going, what? To like both of those things, right? <laughs> <laughs> Could be the same person. So, yeah. And then, uh, so, you know, uh, we also get the fun of uh, comparing this, you know, what looks to be a sort of very, you know, grandiose operatic uh, Chinese film from 2002 versus uh, a gritty 1970s black exploitation film in Sweet Sweet Bass Badass <laughs> Song. So we I get mean- to compare those two films. On our next full episode, that's going to be a lot of fun. And on that note, Ryan, we also have to announce the half episode for next week. So in order for our listeners to be able to watch the films before the episodes launch, we're going to go ahead and make sure that we clearly communicate those because there's been a couple of the half episodes that we haven't been launching ahead of time. Uh, Two of our, our our four listeners have asked and said, hey, what's the deal? So we're going <laughs> to announce those alongside the two films that we randomly draw at the end of every episode. So the half episode for this week is, drum roll please, The Lighthouse by one Mr. Robert Eggers. And, uh, oh, I actually, shit. Okay. Yeah, I actually haven't seen uh, The Witch. I don't know if you saw that one. Did you? I did. I did. I had some problems with that movie. The yeah. um, really thick accents that he gave all his talent, uh, the Cockney accents, I guess they would be your colonial style pilgrim accents, whatever accents pilgrims have. I could not cut through it with a knife. Uh, it was very, <laughs> very difficult for me with all their old jargon and slang and old crotchety gold digger uh, slangs and things. Uh, it was too old timey. I couldn't get into it. <laughs> had a cool ending, but man, it was a long, dry ride. Yeah, so well, we'll I see mean, that really was only different. 90 minutes long, I love too, Willem Dafoe. Film. Yeah, it felt pretty long. I know a lot of people love that movie, so I'll probably catch some hell for not liking The Witch. But you know. <laughs> That's cool. That's cool. Like I said, we all have our cinematic confessions. <laughs> yes, so I'm looking forward to Lighthouse. Like I said, uh, Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson going banana crazy. Uh, I'm all about it. Yeah, absolutely. So, again, just to reiterate for your listeners, uh, our next episode is going to be in two weeks. That's going to be a half episode featuring The Lighthouse. And then two weeks after that, we're going to return with a full episode where we look at Hero and Sweet Sweetback's badass song. It's been a lot of fun hanging out with you guys today. Do want to plug the socials real quick before we go. Uh, you know, again, as much as Ryan and I sit here and love to hear the sound of our own voice drone on for hours and hours at a time, we would love to hear from you guys even more. We talk all the time amongst ourselves and here with you, and we'd love to hear from you about what kind of films you're into right now, what you think of our films, if you watched them, did you like them, did you not, what do you think of our opinions, 
What do you think of our voice? Maybe there's a chance that you just had an exceptional muffin and you really want to tell someone about it. Whatever the reason, you can reach out to us. And uh, we have the Twitter, which is at Esoterica Cinema. And if you don't want to be constrained by 280 characters, you can always send us an email. That's going to be esotericacinema at gmail.com. Hit us up. Tell us about that movie. Tell us about that muffin. Whatever it is, we want to hear from you. And uh, like I said, come back and join us in a couple weeks for The Lighthouse. Until then, Ryan, it has been an exceptional time with you today. And uh, Thanks for having me, buddy. Thanks to everyone for hanging out with us. We'll see you next time. From the visionary minds at Aberrant Literature comes a short fiction collection unlike any other. Aberrant Tales. Bursting at the seams with stories of creativity, excitement, and wonder. Aberrant Tales takes the very best in modern science fiction, fantasy, and horror, and weaves them into one thrilling eclectic package. Featuring the works of Ashton McCauley, M.T. Roberts, Daniel Curland, and Jason Peters. Aberrant Tales is available today in ebook, hardcover, and paperback versions. Online and everywhere books are sold. Published by Aberrant Literature.